Friday, November the 4th, 2022. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of That's What G Said Podcast. Now, it is Breeders' Cup weekend, so if you're looking for some analysis for the Breeders' Cup, we have a bunch of content for you on their own individual shows. We have a full show for Breeders' Cup Friday. We have a full show for Breeders' Cup Saturday, part one, and then there's a part two for Saturday. So uh, about nine hours worth of content, different guests, all helping us talk about the Breeders' Cup. You can find those um, on our prior episodes of That's What G Said. On this one, we're going to get into college football week 10. We'll hit on five of this week's biggest games. We'll take a look at the uh, the playoff rankings. Then we'll dive into NFL week 9 with Eric. Game-by-game game previews there. Some Santa Anita as it is closing weekend at the Santa Anita meet. We'll give you some plays for Friday and for Saturday. Then we have an interview with one of the longtime sponsors of That's What G Said, Cindy Carava, full-service realtor. Cindy Carava talks to us about the market, tells us how things are currently looking out there. We uh, then get into this week in wrestling. It's just me this week, and I'll dive into what's going on in WWE with Raw, with SmackDown, with AEW, with NXT, and we'll give a preview to Clash, uh, the uh, the big show this weekend, the Saudi Arabia Crown Jewel. I was going to say Clash at the Castle, but it is the uh, the Crown Jewel show in Saudi Arabia. And then the old wrestling rewatch, Halloween Havoc 1991 with Andrew Champagne on this episode of That's What G Said. That is presented by Better Than Dot Vegas at BTV Bets. Go give them a follow right now at BTV Bets. Free analysis and information to help you become a better better. Let's dive into some college football talk. The playoff rankings came out over uh, this week in Tennessee is number one, 8-0, followed by Ohio State. Tennessee will have a matchup with the number three ranked team this week in Georgia. So one versus three. The fourth ranked team is Clemson. Number five is Michigan. Alabama is six. TCU at 8-0 is number seven. Oregon and USC are right back-to-back. Two Pac-12 teams, they are 8-9. and nine. LSU is number 10, so that means we're going to have Bama, LSU, 6-10 and 10, hooking up this week. Ole Miss is 11, UCLA is 12, Kansas State 13, Utah 14, Penn State 15. So look at that, top 14, you've got USC, Oregon, UCLA, and Utah all in the top 14. Um, 15 and on, Penn State, Illinois, North Carolina, Oklahoma State got beat up last week. Tulane is 19, Syracuse 20 off of their back-to-back losses. Wake Forest, 21. NC State, 22. Oregon State, another Pac-12 team in the top 25. And Texas and UCF round out the top 25 of the college football playoff rankings. Now, the first game of the uh, the big games this week, I think, is the TCU-Texas Tech game. We have TCU favored by around 9 in this one. Texas Tech is on the road at TCU. Over-under in this game, 69.5. You have T, uh, Texas Tech, who's 4-4 four and four straight up, 4-4 four and four against the spread. TCU, 8-0 straight up, 6-1-1 one one against the spread. And they are ranked number 7 in that college football rankings. TCU is the first Big 12 team ever to beat four consecutive ranked opponents in the regular season. They are third in the nation in points per game, scoring over 44 points per game. They rank only behind Tennessee and Ohio State. And quarterback Duggan ranks third in the nation in pass efficiency rating. He's thrown 22 touchdowns, two interceptions, and as a team, they're averaging 5.8 yards per carry, which is seventh best in the nation. 
for Texas Tech. They have beat a couple ranked opponents so far this year, but they have lost three consecutive games to TCU. Texas Tech has some quarterback issues. They got beat up uh, by Baylor last week, and their starting quarterback, Morton, was 11 of 34 for 152 yards. He had three interceptions there. Not a real strong opinion one way or the other in this one. I, if you if you forced me, I would lean Texas Tech at over a field goal, but not necessarily a play that I'm I'm all that excited about. Tennessee versus Georgia. Tennessee, your number one ranked team. They are eight and zero, seven and one against the spread. Georgia also eight and zero. They are four and four against the spread. Tennessee is number one in scoring offense, forty nine point four points per game. They are number one in total offense. 553 yards per game. Quarterback Hendon Hooker has 2,300 yards passing, 21 touchdowns, and just one interception in eight games. And wide receiver Hyatt, 45 receptions, 900 yards, 14 touchdowns. Incredible numbers. Now, the the difference between these two teams, Georgia is very well balanced. Tennessee's defense isn't quite as strong. They're 26th in scoring defense, and they're 82nd in total defense. They allow 393 yards per game. Georgia, they're number two in the nation in total offense. You probably wouldn't think of Georgia as a big offensive juggernaut, but 530 yards per game, they're sixth in the nation in scoring. They average over 41 points per game, and their defense is second in scoring defense. They allow just 10.5 points per game. They only allow 262 yards per game, which is fourth overall. Outside linebacker Nolan Smith is out for the rest of the year with a torn pectoral muscle. This number is like eight, eight and a half. It feels big, and it probably is a little bit big with how easy Tennessee can score. The game's a little trappy to me. Though I'm I'm not gonna dive in on it. It feels a little too easy to say what Tennessee is an eight eight and a half point fa- uh, underdog. Let's move to Texas versus Kansas State. We have Texas who comes into this game five and three straight up, five and three against the spread. Kansas State six and two straight up, five two and one against the spread. Texas was on a bye last week after losing to Oklahoma State two weeks ago. The same Oklahoma State team that Kansas State beat forty eight to nothing, and Quarterback Howard passed for 296 yards and four touchdowns when Texas played them. Ewers was 19 of 49 passing, 30 incompletions. The running back Robinson for Texas is very good, 920 yards, 11 touchdowns. He's run for 100 yards in six straight games. He's run for 130 in three straight games. I like Kansas State in here, though. Their defense last week, they shut out a team that was averaging 44.7 points per game. Oklahoma State was tied for third in the country in scoring. The last time Oklahoma State was shut out was November 2009. Normally, Oklahoma State averages 466 total yards. In that game, Oklahoma State had 217. And if it's Howard or if it's Martinez, I think either one of them, I don't have a problem playing in this game. I'm going to play Kansas State on the money line. They're a slight underdog here. Howard is more of a drop-back passer. Martinez will run a little bit more. And it's going to make them tough to tough to plan for, not knowing which of these quarterbacks you're going to face. Alabama, LSU, these are two of the top 10 teams in the college football rankings. Alabama, 7-1, 5-3 against the spread. LSU, I would have never guessed they would be ranked 10th. 6-2 straight up, 5-3 
against the spread. Both of these teams coming off a bye. I don't really have a strong opinion in here. If you're telling me I can get LSU at home plus 13 and a half, that's the direction I would lean. So I lean LSU, but not a real strong opinion on that one. Final of the uh, the main five games we wanted to discuss, Clemson-Notre Dame. Clemson is 8-0, and they are 4-4 four and four against the spread. Notre Dame 5-3, and 4-4 four and four against the spread. Clemson, at number four, has the easiest strength of schedule remaining among the top four ranked teams. They're coming off a bye after that close win against Syracuse, but honestly, it didn't feel like it was Clemson coming back as much as it was Syracuse spitting it out. They had to bench their starting quarterback, DJ, who had had a good year leading up to that game, and the the backup quarterback helped lead two fourth quarter touchdown drives when they lay, uh, they leaned on the running back Shipley, who had 172 yards rushing, 50 yard touchdown run to put them ahead. I like Notre Dame in this spot at plus three and a half. Clemson's a three and a half point favorite on the road. I think you play Notre Dame, you play a little money line. Notre Dame has won five of their last six. They beat up Syracuse. They rush for 240 yards. Last week, the defense had four sacks and a pick six to start the game. I like Notre Dame in here beating Clemson and take the points here plus the three and a half. Good luck in the college football week 10 games coming up this week. Let's move from college football to pro football. Let's dive on into the NFL with Eric. We're going to talk about week number nine with Eric, but before we do, Let's uh let's talk about our friends at Sarah Candles, C E R A Candles.com. Fellas, if you're listening to this, sometimes you need help with the gift for the, for the lady, for the significant other. If you're ladies that are listening to this and you know you need a you need something sometimes for the fellas. I love me a candle. There's nothing wrong with a, a nice strong scent. They're a great gift when you're not exactly sure what to get someone. And you can let them know that these candles are all natural. They are soy wax, no toxins, no carcinogens, no pollutants. C-E-R-A, candles.com, sarahcandles.com, the promo code G-I-N-O. That'll get you 10% off your purchase. Let's talk NFL Week 9, game-by-game previews with Eric. NFL Week 9 as. We are taking a look at the betting lines uh, over at Betfred Sportsbook. Eric from ETOF21 Sports joins me as he has every single week for the last couple of years to dive into all of these games. And Eric, week nine, pretty crazy that we're already into week nine, but we're now at the point where we have a good sample size with things, you know, what we can really use a lot of the, the metrics, the numbers, some of the advanced stats and, um, yeah, so like DVOA, things like that, they really start to feel like they uh, they have more worth now that you've seen teams have seven, eight games. And we open things up with a pretty important game for a team like the Jets. Man, you, you watch this Jets team, and they're, they're a decent football team with a very, very bad quarterback right now, Eric. I mean, if they don't have Zach Wilson on their team, they win last week pretty easily in that game against the Patriots. Wilson threw threw three interceptions. One of them wasn't a pass. He thought he was throwing away. He like just thought he was throwing it away and and it went right into the hands of a New England defender. And then another one, he should have thrown away and he tried to force a play. And, And he's just, 
he even made a comment after the game that he said, you know, it's hard when you, when I, I'm supposed to just throw the ball away or not really make a play or, you know, I'm not supposed to be asked to do anything and hand the ball off. That's boring. It's like, dude, you were winning games. Like you're yeah. winning games. You're just, you're supposed to limit the mistakes. When he holds to the, when he holds onto the ball for three or more seconds, he is 40th out of 40 quarterbacks in EPA per dropback this year. He is dead last when he holds onto the ball for more than three seconds. When he gets rid of it in less than three seconds, he's above average. If he just plays into the scheme and doesn't try to play hero ball, this team could be a competent team. The problem is I just don't trust him to do that. They are, uh, and what's what's hard about the Jets, Eric, they come into this game five and three. They are five and three against the spread. But you start to dive into their schedule, and this is something that you've been harping on for a while. Now, they're eighth in schedule-adjusted efficiency. So they're eighth in defensive DVOA. But you start to dive into the teams they've played week by week by week. They sure as hell have not dealt with an offense like this one. The teams that they have played, they caught them in really, really great circumstances going through their schedule. They caught the Dolphins with Skylar Thompson. They caught Pittsburgh with a backup quarterback situation happening. And they played Green Bay and a Denver team also dealing with with issues, injury issues, Denver dealing with a quarterback issue. And then Green Bay, who's been really incompetent you start diving into their schedule and they've sort of just taken advantage of, you know, inferior opponents or teams that were not coming in to play them at the right time. I, I mean, I'm not going to lay any number with the bills. This is an 11 and a half point spread on the road in a divisional game. I just, I have a hard time trusting Wilson after what I saw last week. And then I heard the bills come out of their game, Eric, and they acted like they lost. They were mad about how they played. They're like, we were really sloppy in the second half. We got to be better. We got to be sharper. It's like, uh-oh. They got a chip on their shoulder coming out of that game. What do you think of uh, Bill's Jets? Yeah, I don't want anything to do with this game. I mean, usually these home divisional dogs of over a touchdown is what We I'm would be about. on this side, right? Always on the Jets side, almost always. It. I mean, I'll be honest. If Brees Hall was, pro- was healthy, I'd probably be on the Jets. I agree. Uh, you know, Hall, you know, home run hitter, James Robinson, he's still coming back from that. Achilles, we don't know if he's really picked up the playbook yet because he was so limited in his um in his snap count last week. Also, uh Corey Davis is hurt. He gets the target share of the targets from Corey Davis. But when you just look at the strengths of this Bills defense and what the Jets like to do, I don't know how they're gonna be able to move the ball. I know this game is just a pure pass for me. I don't want anything to do with it. And at a big point spread, the Bills in the last two years, they have 13 wins by 14 points or more. And the second closest team has nine. Mm -hmm. Nobody else has double digit. They have 13 times been in situations where they would have covered a 14 point spread. So they'll beat you up like that. They kind of do beat up on inferior opponents too. They're not one of those types of teams that like plays with their food a whole heck of a lot. Um, I I'm, I'm with you though. I just, I can't get excited to play this game either way. Diggs had a monster game. Um, How about this one? This is the second largest spread of a road favorite against a team with a winning record since 1990. Jesus. 
So, yeah, That's Bills. Amazing. That is utterly amazing when you say it like that. Yeah, it, it is kind of crazy because you think about it, like winning record at this point of the year, normally you would have a team that wouldn't be a double-digit point home underdog. It's a weird week with some of these numbers, Bills, Jets, as uh, we move along and we get to Panthers, Bengals. So we have the Panthers coming into this game at two and six, three and five against the spread. The Bengals four and four, five and three against the spread. And Eric, we were texting last week and, and I sort of agreed with you. You're, you said, you know what, with no Matt rule, they don't have like a Baker quarterback issue. They have this sort of young, this quarterback PJ Walker, who just is trying to make it out there and prove that he can do anything. He, he doesn't really have any sort of ego when it comes to, where he was drafted or what he should be doing or anything like that. And it seems like the guys around him like playing, like catching passes for him. They seem like they battle a little bit more Man, that game last week. We could probably do a full hour podcast on that Panthers Falcons game. Cause it looked like the Panthers were going to win that game three or four times. Looked like the Falcons were going to win that game three or four times. Then the Panthers actually hit a crazy hail Mary which you never see happen. They get the Hail Mary and DJ Moore celebrates because he makes this incredible catch, a 62 yard touchdown bomb to give them the lead with 12 seconds. They get called for a penalty, a penalty because he took his helmet off when he was celebrating and they got forced into an, uh, a 48 yard extra point. They missed the extra point and they end up going to overtime. It was like, if we were writing a movie, like a script and you saw, somebody give you the script for what happened in that game, you wouldn't even believe it. You'd be like, no, that doesn't happen. That's too far-fetched. Nobody's going to believe that. It was a bizarre game. Weird game. Um, You know, I got a feel for DJ Moore. You know, he was just excited, took off his helmet. Uh, Very, very interesting game. Um, I'm friends with a couple scouts, and I, him and I were texting during the Monday night Monday night football game between the Browns and the Bengals. And we're talking about the O-line. And he told me, he goes, take out your cell phone and just hit when the, when the, when the ball's hiked, just see how long Burrow's holding onto the ball. Burrow is insanely holding onto the ball for routinely more than three seconds. It is hard for an offensive. Oh, on last week. And what's funny is last week, it was like the flip the, in the weeks before last week, he had finally been doing the opposite, and you could just tell that without Chase, he was like lost out there. That's his guy. That's who yeah. he's looking for. Even if he's not making the throw, he sort of knows that Chase is there taking the defenders with him, and that creates space for the other guys. We talked about this. When everybody has to slot themselves up, it's much different if you're a wide receiver two becoming a wide receiver one and having to get open when people are focused on you. Yeah. Yeah, I just to me this kind of feels like a, a flat spot for the um for the Bengals coming off that win. Um the one thing I found interesting and as I was looking at it, PFF has this matchup graded pretty high in the trenches for the the Panthers. I found that kind of interesting. Um the one thing like I don't want it to do anything side. I'm really interested to see what Terrence Marshall props are. They're not posted yet. Last game, nine targets, four receptions, 87 yards. Uh, The game before, he only had two receptions for 31 yards, three targets. There's a penalty, right? 
Yeah, no, he had a couple called back on a penalty. So yeah, a bit, one big one that I remember yeah. for sure. So I'm gonna definitely be interested in Terrence Marshall. I picked him up you, in a couple fantasy leagues. Yeah, you sniffed him out a few weeks kid. ago. And he, yeah, I've been high on this kid since he came out of uh, LSU. And in, in in like watching the film and stuff too, and, and watching the games back, there there are more opportunities than he's than they've hit him for too yeah. like he's open on plays and they're just like a little off but it seems like there's a good chemistry with him and pj like pj's looking for him i i agree with you i think he's he's kind of a sneaky guy to look at and to play and yeah i'm i'm with you i don't really have a strong opinion on the side one way or the other i gotta see what how the Bengals look offensively without chase a little bit and what a weird game for the panthers i, I will just say they look a lot more competent their offense is moving the ball a lot better they just look like they don't look anemic like they did for a few weeks where they just couldn't do anything. And then, you know, that helps their defense a little bit. So staying away on the side as we move to the Lions and the Packers. I was texting you about this game as it was going, Eric. And man, this was a frustrating one as a, I'm sure a Lions fan or a Lions backer in here. Lions get up by 14, come out firing. They look great. And there was one play that, even after this play, the Lions came back and got back up and were playing well. But I swear this play was the one when I texted you and I could just feel like we were like the Lions were going to lose the game or they were in trouble. It was third and 10. It was third and goal from the 10. And the Lions made a stop, but there was an illegal contact penalty that gave the Dolphins an automatic first down. Instead of being 14 to three, it's 14 to seven. And you just, it was like a weird momentum feel. And it was all game, Eric. The Dolphins were 8 of 12 on third down, 1 of 1 on fourth down. And these were not third and short. This was the, the list. Third and 10, third and 6, third and 13, third and 6, third and 6, third and 3, third and 8. All of those resulted in first downs. All yeah. of them. Yeah, I don't remember a team giving up so many third and longs than I do with the uh, my boys. Um, you know, they scored 27 points, zero in the second half, you know. They only fit. had three possessions. That was yeah. so weird. It was br- – and the main thing is, at the end of the day, Swift, he just can't stay healthy. He's a no. dynamic player. He's He just can't stay healthy. Um, PFF has the Lions graded as the fourth best advantage in the trenches for the running game. Uh, flip side, though, they have the Packers great as the second best. So is Hutchinson, because they're starting to move Hutchinson around, is he going to be able to get home? I know the Lions are going to be able to run the ball with Reynolds and Williams because there's no way Swift is going to be playing. Lions did fire their D-back coach. I'm interested to see like what is going to happen from there. But I look at the game like this. At home this year, the Lions have scored 35, 36, 45, <clears throat> and 27. The bear, the excuse me, the Packers, they've put up 27 once. They haven't scored 22. They've lost four in a row and they haven't scored more than 22 in any of those games. Yeah. So, I mean, the, I played the Lions. Plus I have to at plus the three and a half. At over the field gonna, goal, you have they're to. They're going to be able to run the ball. They're going to be able to move the ball. You yeah, know, the, the Panthers defense. defense or the Packers run defense is atrocious. They are absolutely miserable against the run. Some of their metrics got a little bit better in kind of a weird deceiving game last time because like DVOA, for example, like DVOA doesn't take into account like the, like the flow of the game. It just takes into account like the efficiency of each play. So, you know, the, the Packers, 
they were still running the ball late in the game last week in a game where they were done. They were just running the ball, but they were picking up big chunks. So they actually got a pretty good DVOA coming out of that game, even though it was like a game that they never looked like they were going to win in any way, shape or form. Man, I have been really down on this team. They're the 22nd ranked DVOA green Bay is overall. And um, their real weakness is the rush. They're 31st in rushing defensive efficiency. I completely agree with you. Yeah, Plus they're three. Be able to move, yeah, they're going to be able to move the ball here. I don't know if the Lions will win the game, but this to me, this screams Crosby last second field goal for the win victory for the, the Packers. Yeah, I like another heartbreak. What's funny is, you know, you know, it's going to be a heartbreaking one for your Lions, but maybe we can cover with the with the three and a half here and get a little uh, get a little something out of it. Uh, we're both on the Lions side here. Let's make that one of our uh, our five plays for this week. We've got Lions plus the three and a half here. Eric, let's move along to Colts in the Patriots. You know what? There were some spots where uh, Erlinger, and I don't know how to, I do. I'm Eric when it comes to his name. Ellinger, Erlinger, Erlinger. I have no idea how to, what Ellinger. to call him. I know how to do call this. Him. Sam Ellinger. I know how to do this. Part. There we go. Okay. Uncle Sam, Uncle Sammy. There we go. Now, What's, what's kind of nice about him is he's a little bit competent just sort of running the ball. He can move his legs a little bit. And maybe maybe now, after another week, they scheme some runs in for him because New England has always had trouble with in the Belichick era with mobile quarterbacks. Quarterbacks that can move around a little bit. And New England is not that great against the run either. The Colts continue to commit, you know, just key turnovers, though. They fumbled uh, in scoring position early in the second quarter last week. Then Jonathan Taylor fumbled again in scoring range on a play that would have been a first down in the red zone. But the defense, they were playing well, but then they, they couldn't come up with big plays. In the second half, first four possessions for Washington, they only gave up one first down and 22 yards of total offense, and they got an interception. But then on the last two drives of the game, they allowed Washington to go 80 yards and 80 yards back-to-back drives, like all the way down. It was like Heineke was just moving at will. Um, Man, for the Patriots, I don't know if I can take a whole lot out of that win for them more than, damn, Zach Wilson really hurt the Jets in that game. And if they just got like average to even slightly below average quarterback play. I think the jets probably win that game. I haven't been very high on the Patriots uh, a lot of this year They, you know, they only attempted three passes of 20 plus air yards. It, it seems weird. Like he wants to get Mac in the game, but he doesn't really trust Mac. Or I don't know if he's trying to do some weird thing where he's trying to show Mac, like, Hey, you can't even throw the ball down the field. Maybe we got to go back to zappy. I still feel like there's some weird stuff going on with the quarterback uh, room and the offensive line. They gave up six sacks. Mac Jones was 0 for 4 with an interception when he was under pressure. So he was not great under pressure there. Talk to us about this game. What are we seeing the number right now? A bet Fred Patriots minus five over under like 40 and a half. Yeah, I kind of feel like this spot screams for me to play the Colts and the rebound. You know, they fired their OC from what I've talked, what I've heard heard is the OC was kind of heavily involved in the scripted plays to start the game. And then Wright kind of took over from there in terms of like in-game stuff. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that happens, uh, how stuff is changing. 
On top of that, um, Ellinger, second start, first start on the road against a Belichick defense. That worries me. I know the Patriots are 27th year. I agree, though. But Taylor hasn't, Taylor hasn't practiced two days in a row now. He's obviously not 100%. They just drafted Naheem Hines. They just traded Hines to the Bills in return for Zach Moss. Zach Moss probably, in all reality, won't be able to pick up the playbook. Or, you know, his snap count will be limited. Then you have to lean on the kid Jackson. I just don't know if the Colts have the firepower to be able to do anything on this Patriots defense. Flip side, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Mac Jones, he just he doesn't look right. They didn't win that game because of Mac Jones. No. So it's just really hard to get involved in anything on either side of this game. And five field goals made. And they also got a big punt return to set up an easy field goal in a game where the Jets, it was sort of like, and, and you had been kind of sniffing this out. You were waiting for a game to come for the Jets where it was all going to come crashing down kind of at the same time for them. And, mm-hmm. and it did last week. Um, where it was Wilson was bad and the Jets special teams was really bad. They had a bad punt that co- punt coverage gave up a uh, really bad field position to, to new England. So yeah, I, I initially I'm not diving in on them. If I, in some of the, the leagues in, in contest I play in where you're forced to pick a, a team, I'm going to go Colts, but it's not like the top of my card. And I, I don't know if I'm going to go bet it. If you forced me to pick a side here, at five, I guess I would take the Colts mainly because, like, I just don't, I'm not really impressed with the Patriots offensively. So, any numbers over three, I, I would probably lean in a lot of directions against the Patriots, honestly. Um, so, yeah, may, maybe we come back to this one, but let's get to Raiders and the Jags. So, w- what a weird game from the Raiders last week. If, if you had to tell me that the Raiders lost by 20 or 30 points. It wouldn't have shocked me, but they did not cross midfield until the two minute warning in the fourth quarter, mm-hmm. not even midfield. And you and I were a little disappointed in the saints defense coming into last week. We thought they were going to be a little bit better than they were. They had some injuries and stuff. It's not like they've been completely healthy, but I still think they have, li- they've underachieved a little bit throughout the year. And so the Raiders got shell shocked by an, a defense that hasn't even been, like, dominant. That wasn't even the defense that was humming on all cylinders that shut the Raiders down. And now, again, you have a Raiders team that's on the road, going east in an early game, and they're a slight favorite in here. Adams and Renfo caught one pass each last week. One. Th- this is already the second time in eight games that their head coach has had a sit-down meeting with the owner already, already twice so far this year, they spent a ton of money on all these offensive weapons. They're 26th in overall DVOA. They're behind Washington, the lions, the Jags and Atlanta, just overall their offense, which was supposed to be their strength is 20th in DVOA. I mean, I don't know if I love the Jags overall as a team with what I've seen recently. I truly think that, the, the lack, like not having Robinson in there along with Etienne hurts them a little bit. Because uh, I think that that made them a really nice one-two punch where you had two backs who were able to really do what, what they were good at. I mean, Etienne has been incredible when you dive into the numbers. He had a career high with 156 yards rushing last week, over 20 carries for the first time. I don't know if he can hold up that way because he doesn't seem like that type of back. 
I still got to say that like in this spot, it's not really much, but I, I don't think the Raiders should be favored in this game on the road like this. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, I gave this one out on Tuesday on my stream. Uh, anyone that knows me knows I like playing home dogs. and I don't like this Raiders team. They're one of the worst defenses yep. in the league. Great spot for Lawrence. Raiders are 29th DVOA um, defense, DVOA 31 in pass defense. Um, this is also shaping up to be a good ending game for receiving yards. Raiders are 32 DVOA defending the running back in the passing game. I like that. And have given up the fourth most receiving yards to opposing backs. The funny thing is with that stat, everyone else in the top 10 has played seven games. The Raider has only played six. So they've played one last game and they're still in the still- top 10. Yeah. Wow. Um, and then I'm just kind of looking at this. Car, you know, 37% ATS is a favorite, 29 is a road favorite. And historically speaking, teams in this spot have covered the number. Jays are on a five-game losing streak against the spread. Teams in this position are 58% ATS. I think this is a get-right spot for the uh for the Jaguars. I don't think the Raiders should be the favorite. I absolutely nope. love them here. I yep. um we're locking I, this in as I'm one of our five plays. Yep, I agree with you. Raiders two and five, three and four against the spread. Jags two and six, two and six against the spread. But the uh, the Jags have been a lot more competent and a lot closer in a lot of their games. This still, they you know it's it's hard because people got really excited early on with what they saw from the Jags in the first couple of weeks. But we got to remember that honestly, last year was just like a, a toss out year. It's not like it was even a development year for a lot of these guys. They they had such bad habits and things went so wrong for them that it's like Peterson and this staff really still has a lot of a lot of work to do to get them to learn how to win games. It it, it wasn't going to be automatic or easy for them and th- this feels like a good spot for them again cuz I think they went from being a little overvalued early to now I think they're a little undervalued again. Yeah, this is definitely I think this is a get right spot for it. You know, the trends back it up and Etienne, you know, look shaping up to be a big Etienne game. Um, so yeah, I, I like him here. Plus meeting with the owner is never a good sign. So no, man. I'll, twice I'll the, uh, twice in two months so far. How about the chargers and the Falcons up next? The first place Atlanta Falcons. Shout out to you, my friend. You were very high on this team overachieving. Um, when we talked in our, did our off season previews, you, you mentioned the coaching staff. And again, it's another instance where did Atlanta dominate the game that they just won against Carolina? No. Could that game have gone either way? Absolutely. You know, five or six plays that if the, if one of the teams made the play, they would have won that game. But you know what? You look up in Atlanta's four and four and they're in first place. And last year, we looked up, and this team had a horrible roster. They were bad by all metrics, but they still were hanging around. They were like a seven-win team. They gave themselves a shot late in the year to make the playoffs. It's kind of cool to see them being competitive. I really don't know what to do with them in this spot, or I don't. I guess I just don't have a strong opinion overall in here. I'd, I'd probably lean Atlanta if we could get it up at plus three and a half. You have a Chargers team who gave up 214 yards rushing to Seattle a couple weeks back. And the uh, the Chargers um, feel like they're starting to feed Eckler a little bit more. He had 127 scrimmage yards in that game, two touchdowns. It was his ninth career game with a, a, at least one rushing and one receiving touchdown. Chargers four and three, four and three straight up. Atlanta 
after starting 6-0 and against the spread, they've lost their last two ATS. Talk to us about the Chargers-Falcons. So I look at it like this. Um, you know, PFF has this graded out as a phenomenal matchup for the Falcons. The, they are going to be able to move the ball. But I look at it like this. The Falcons are so beat up in that secondary. Terrell's her Hayward's on the um, on the uh, injured reserve. I just don't know how they're going to be able to generate enough stops. And I've said it before, anytime there's a team that kind of is like has firepower, I'll use that term, it's going to be hard for this Atlanta team to keep up with them. So I would definitely lean the Chargers here, but I don't like laying points on the road. So I'm yeah. going to, I'm looking in a different direction. I, I got a player prop. I know Hutley's kind of the buzz for everyone in terms of fantasy, in terms of um, if Patterson doesn't come back this week for the Falcons. Uh, Algier outsnapped him 40 yeah. to 24. I actually so like the way he ran visually too. I thought he looked like he was running the ball better. So I'm going to be looking at some Algier props. Patterson doesn't play. Algier would definitely be in the DFS lineup. But until we know what's going on, we really can't do anything. They're not going to hang any numbers. So I'm just laying back right now waiting for some Algier props. But I'm just not going to play a side in this game. To hit on a point that you made, in the second half, Atlanta allowed PJ to throw for 250 yards and four scoring drives. So their secondary is really beat up. If you're if they're allowing Carolina and their, you know, passing game to attack them that way, you know, if Herbert is a little bit healthier in this spot, the, the I guess the only question like would be they're not going to have very many options at receiver, right? So do you think this would be a a lean on Eckler game? Is it is there someone else is like a Carter who who would be the, the you receiver? Carter, you got Palmer. Um you know, Keenan Allen suffered a sub back. Because I don't like think he's going to play, right? So yeah, Keenan Allen and play. Williams will be out, it looks like. So you got a couple of those guys. You got Gerald Everett. You got Eckler out of the backfield. So. Might be in a hey, – yeah, that's a good point. Everett might be a decent game yeah. there for him. As uh, we move along to Dolphins and the Bears. So, man, the Dolphins, they come off of a game last week against your Lions. Like we said, if the Lions – make one or two third down stops. They win the game. What one or two of them, they, they allowed Miami to repeatedly pick up big plays. And the lions looked like the better team for a lot of that game. Now the dolphins were down 14. They shut out the lions in the second half. And I got to say Tua, he's been very good. He's graded number one right now by pro football focus. Now, if you look, he doesn't have as many big time throws because he, he, puts the ball in the hands of his receivers and it makes it a little bit easier when you have a guy like Hill. He has four games this year with 160 plus receiving yards. All of the other wide receivers in the league combined have four games with 160 yards or more. And actually the most ever in a season was Roy green. He did it five times in 1984 in Hill currently has 961 receiving yards. That's the third most ever for a player during their first eight games in a season in the Super Bowl era. So he's first in receiving yards and Waddle is fourth in receiving yards. They have combined for 1,688 receiving yards. That is the most ever by a duo in the first eight games of the season in a Super Bowl era. So is to a 
playing better than I thought he would? Yes. Is it still time to say that Tua can make all the throws? And no. did you see him the other day chirping at the media? Did you see the comment that he made? No. So they, he said something along the lines of, you know, somebody made a comment and he said, oh yeah, you know, didn't you guys say that I can't throw down the field or something? You know, he was kind of snarky pointing out like, look at how great I am throwing deep down the field. I don't know if that's the case. I mean, again, better than where I thought he would be at this point. I'm not quite ready to just crown him. Speaking of crown him, we're going to crown the bears. We can't crown those bears, but I like what I've seen more recently from the bears, Eric, the offense looks so much more competent coming off the, the buy. I think for them, they, they felt like they changed their scheme up a little bit. There were a lot more designed runs they didn't have any bad turnovers last week and field through some nice passes. He's getting through his reads a little bit quicker. He was better in the red zone, uh, threw it for a nice touchdown there. He also had a deep pass that was dropped in the third quarter and they rushed for 240 net rushing yards. They have run now, the Bears have, for 200 yards plus in three straight games for the first time since 1968 when Gail Sayers was on the team. I've... I've been pleasantly surprised with the with the last few weeks of Justin Fields and the Bears and the coaching staff. And I don't know if he's going to play this week. They made a trade for Claypool. That should help them a little bit. Just, I mean, Claypool is right now their best receiver they have. Right, yeah. he'll walk onto their team and be the best guy that they have. Yeah. Um. So last year I came on your podcast and I went in this whole dive about how the Eagles are leaning on their. They're running game, running the ball over 40 times a game, putting less pressure on Jalen Hurts. And that's what the that's what the Bears have started to do with Justin Fields. It started at the Commanders game, 37 attempts, 237 yards, 32 minutes time of possession. Patriots, 45 attempts, 243, 37. Cowboys, 43, 240, and 36 minutes time of possession. They're making it easier for Fields by doing this and putting less pressure on him, which is going to help with his development. Uh, you're right. Adding um, Claypool is going to be immediate. Is going to be great because you have someone that can high, high points, high point the ball. Um, I like what they're doing. You can run on this Dolphins defense. I think, I think the number is a little too high, man. Like if I'm going to be completely honest, I want it's I've four totally and a half, agree. five, and I mean just oh, it's it's going down to four, so it's starting to move a little bit. So it's down to four and a half. Um, at three and I, a half or over, I'm in like four. Yeah. I definitely am in three and a half. I'm okay. I think like, I'm gonna it, lock it, this in right now. yeah. Cause I just, I've Miami's another one of those teams that I'm, I'm not, I don't know how great they are. They're, they're, they're fun. They're, they're, you know, they're exciting because of, of Hill. This feels like a good spot for the bears who are, are quietly playing think of it like this. Bears are better than the lions. Lions were getting three and a half. Are the Bears really a point and a half point worse than the Lions? I don't think they are with the way they're playing. No, and and because they have what's nice is they have an identity, like you said, they run the ball really well, and that's taking pressure off of Fields. And it just seems like they came out of their bye with, and they did some work. Yeah, like I, you could just tell they did. They made some adjustments since then, and they've changed things because they probably looked at what happened the first six seven weeks of the year and said, okay, these things didn't really work. Let's try to do what you said. 
Let's let's use a team like Philly from last year as a template. Let's make it easier on our quarterback. And they've done that. And now all of a sudden, with a little less pressure, he's able to make some good throws here and there. Yeah, which We're- which is good. Um, something important to know, I know a lot of people look at the weather. Soldier Field is the worst stadium by far. It's supposed to rain here heavy Friday and Saturday. Um, I here because I live in Chicago. Um, so the field's gonna be pretty mucky. If that's the case, even though it's not raining, it's going to play to the Bears' favor because of the, the way they play, and it's going to limit the speed of the um, of the, uh, the the Dolphins. Excuse me. The Dolphins, who have a, a really good offense overall, they're fifth in offensive DVOA, but they don't run the ball all that well. They're 19th in rushing DVOA because you just think of them like, they're fine running the ball, but they don't really have a power attack. They take advantage of their really fast wide receivers who have had excellent starts to the year. We're on the Bears plus the four and a half. And as we move to this next game, I'm absolutely on the uh, the commies in here, Washington. I, I'm gonna we're gonna get Minnesota a couple times this year. Uh, we are because they're just a tad overvalued. Now they come off of a pretty well rounded win in that. They got contributions from a lot of different players. Cousins played pretty well. Cook rushed for over 100 yards. Um, Peterson had a big pass breakup. Zarius Smith had a couple sacks, left with an injury, then came back, had another sack late in the game. They, they still don't put teams away, though. They cannot close games out. They left points on the board in the first half. They missed a field goal. Or they missed a point after, and they had a field goal blocked. They've won five games in a row. All five of them decided by one score. Yep. Um, and I think the key for them and, and Washington in this matchup, so they're, they've been running the ball well, and that helps open up their passing game. They're top five in rush efficiency. 45% of their runs have gained five-plus yards. That's the second best in the game in the league. But on the other side, you have a Washington team that's – pretty good against the run. They are second in DVOA rush efficiency and they're second in yards allowed before contact. So they should be able to shut down the run. They're also sixth best in the league defending three wide receiver sets on third downs. They're sixth best in the league defending early down runs. This Washington defense, Eric, is starting to look a lot more like what we thought it would be last year. They're actually pretty good overall defensively. And I think that they match up well with this Minnesota team, you know, just kind of strength on strength, weakness on weakness. You dive into Minnesota. They have faced a top 10 schedule of offenses on paper. So it looks like they've beat some pretty good offenses, but kind of what we were saying about the jets, you start diving into Minnesota and and who they've played in each of those games. Well, you know, week one, They beat the Packers. Packers didn't have a couple starting linemen. And now we find out that the Packers really aren't very good, honestly. And their offense doesn't look very good. They beat Miami, who was playing with Skylar Thompson and not their starting quarterback. They beat the Saints, who were playing without Kamara and Michael Thomas. And they had a bunch of injuries that game. Now, all of a sudden, you look into their, you know, six and one record. Three of their wins have been in situations where they beat up on Hurt inferior opponents. I think they're, they are due for some regression at 
at some point here. I really do. And I like what I've been seeing from Washington. You had a big game for McLaren. Heineke gets him much more involved. And it was it was like peak Heineke. He struggled early, throws a bad interception in the fourth quarter, and they're down nine. And then he takes him on two 80-yard drives to kick a field goal and then score a touchdown to win the game. He... Um, he has four fourth quarter comebacks since 2021. You know, the guy, he just, he's really not afraid of the moment. I kind of like him. Washington was before they won last week since 2000, their record was one and 128 when they were trailing by multiple scores in the final five minutes of the fourth quarter. They won't, they hadn't won a game like that since 2005 where they were down late and they were able to come back. They're top five on most pressure metrics and why that's key. Cousins is not nearly as good with pressure. He has five turnover worthy plays this year for adjusted accuracy, ranking the quarterbacks with pressure. He's 28th. If they can put pressure on him, like their defense can do all these little things to make it a little bit harder. And it feels like one of these games where I think the pressure could get to cousins. It's a cousins reunion game for Washington. And that might be something for a guy like him. Who's not really good at rising to the occasion. That may be like a little weird and kind of a big moment. He's already mentioned it. I'm locking in the commanders at, at three or anything over. Um, I got two plays in this game. My, uh, my first play I took, Terry McLaren, Terry McLaurin over 64 and a half yards rushing. Um, the Vikings are tw- 32nd DVOA defending opposing wide receivers. Number one, number one wide receiver. If you just look at McLaren first game against the Packers, when Heineke took over eight targets, five receptions, 73 car- yards last week against the Colts, eight targets, six receptions, 113 yards. Heineke's starting to go to him. So I'm getting this at 64 and a half. He's gone over at both games since um, Heineke's took over. No-brainer bet for me. Uh, and then you kind of mentioned the nail on the head. You just kind of look at what the commanders have done, how they've how they've won games. Nothing's really been that impressive for me. I know they got Hawkinson. I think that's actually there because I don't really think the offensive line is that good, and he's a good blocker. I think that's there to help Cook a little bit more. I think this is just a great matchup. I'll take the home dog. I actually got it at three and a half. I'll play yeah, earlier in the week, right? So that better number there too. But three would be my my number. I wouldn't want to go less than the three, but I'm fine with three and over. Obviously, look for the best that you can get. And uh, no problem sprinkling some money line in here. I think the Vikings will have a couple of these close wins. They'll, they'll The ball will bounce the other way for them a couple times in the second half of the season. Let's move to the Seahawks versus the Cardinals. Seattle five and three straight up five and three against the spread Arizona three and five straight up four and four against the spread Arizona had another huge game for Hopkins 12 catches 159 yards he had an awesome touchdown catch they could only gain 78 yards rushing on the ground as a team now Seattle they continue to pick up victories they did get the benefit of 10 free points in that game against the Giants when Richie James muffed two punts there and so two different times Seattle had a possession punted it and then just got another possession and both of those times resulted in points a field goal and then a touchdown so I mean you take those 10 points off the board the entire game could have changed I will say 
They did outplay the Giants, though. Their offense looked much better. The defense had five sacks, and the special teams recovered two fumbles on punts. So Seattle, in this spot, is a, what, two? This number has kind of moved around a little bit, right? Arizona is a two-point favorite in here at home. Seattle, a two-point dog on the road. It's been kind of drifting around. You know, I'm just kind of looking at the trends here. You know, Cliff at home, 39% as a home favorite. 31% 31% against a coach that's won a Super Bowl, 37%. Carroll as a road dog, 58%. Um, but you know what? I kind of feel like if you take, I kind of feel it's trappy. I don't know what it is. I know. I agree I with you. I kind of feel it's a little trappy. I mean, if this gets down to like a one, I'll definitely be looking to play the cards. You know, they that game against Minnesota, you know, that game wasn't as, bad as the score indicates you know there was that muff punt that kind of flipped they were in it they had a chance they had a couple chances late in yeah. the game where it was a one procession score to, to try to tie it they just I, I don't tr- i agree with you i don't like trusting them in spots where they're a big favorite but if this gets down to where it's basically a pick them you know i i still don't know how much i trust seattle i think it's a fantastic story like i can't discount what they've been doing and they do look like their defense is starting to play better. Like Pete Carroll looks like he's enjoying it. The whole team looks like they like each other more as a team. Tyler Lockett made a comment the other day and said, you know, it's so nice when nobody cares about accolades. I wonder who he's taking a shot at, you know, Russ, obviously like it's just amazing that, you know, you eliminate Russ and this is what it looks like. Um, but it, I more, agree, it does, it, it feels a little trappy. I, I don't think I'm going to dive in on either side at this current number right here. I look at it like this. Uh, this I need to know what's going on with James Conner. Uh, Seattle has given up the second most yards per uh, for the season to opposing running backs in the passing game. So I just need to know. Like, like I'll look at, you know, Benjamin. I'll look at James Conner. Um, kind of depends on who's playing, but that's the only thing I'm kind of interested in this game. Let's get to... Rams Bucks. How about this? Your last two Super Bowl winners. How how down does this game feel for that? Because I mean, like sometimes the NFL does stuff with their scheduling. You notice there's they, only two games. They did it on purpose because this they thought this was going to be a marquee game that everybody was going to yeah. watch, and now it's like what a flat game. The Rams come in three and four, two and five against the spread. Tampa three and five, two and six against the spread. These were the top two betting favorites to win the NFC before the year started. And, and just to give you an idea, Tampa right now at three and five, they would need to win every game in order to go over their win total, their projected win total. Yeah. Um, so they are um, in a tough spot if you played over on their wins. The Rams, again, couldn't really run the ball. They did go on this nice 17-play drive in the second for a, a score. Here's the thing. I don't think the Rams look good overall. I don't. But I will say, they have four losses this year, and here's the teams that they've lost to. The Bills, the 49ers twice, and the Cowboys. Those teams are number one, number three, and number seven in DVOA. It's not as if we're talking about having bad losses. The problem is... They don't have good wins. They haven't like looked good visually. And the offensive line hurts. These are the two worst rushing offenses in the league. These two. Neither team can run the ball. The Rams are dead last in offensive EPA per play. 
how are they dead last in defensive pressure rate with Donald? That does not even seem like it would make sense. The health of Cup is a little bit concerning for them. I don't really have much positive to say about Tampa. On the flip side, I mean, Tampa, they are the sixth team since 1970 to be favored in their first nine games of a season and have a losing record. So to give you an idea, two other teams this year have been favored in all of their games so far. The Bills and the Eagles. And they're combined 13-1. and (laughs) That's how your record's supposed to be when you're favored in every game like Tampa has been. And that's the only thing I will say in comparing these two teams in that Tampa has some ugly losses to bad teams where they haven't even looked good. And at least the Rams got beat by some good teams. But Tampa does get Davis and Murphy bunting back. That should help them a little bit. And you could see this as a revenge spot for Tampa after the Rams knocked them out last year. Tampa is the worst team at third down and seven or more in like the last five years. They're not even the worst team this year. They're so bad that no teams in the last few years have been as bad as Tampa at like third and seven or longer. That's just like automatically a punt for them at this point, which is so bizarre because that's, you would think of Brady and you think of him being able to, you know, to make big plays there on, you know, on third and long, but I don't really know how to get excited about either one of these teams. Do you have a play in here, Eric? Um, You know, Bucks only 31st DVOA running the ball. I really think that's leading to the issues because they can't lean on Fournette. I think going in this year, they're planning leading for, on Fournette a lot, but then you factor in, you know, losing offensive linemen, injuries to the offensive linemen, and Fournette just can't get it going. Brady's – you know, he's not mobile. He's been playing with a lot of different wide receiver sets. It's really hard to trust him. Flip side, Cooper Cup's hurt. And that's the whole offense. You know, this running game has been non-existent. Um, they have issues blocking. I don't know how you can do anything in this game at all without knowing what could, what's going on with Cooper Cup. Maybe if Cup plays, I'll look to play the Rams live if they get down. But I don't. I don't really want anything to do in this game because both these teams are putrid in my eyes. I think I'm okay with like trying the one positive I have seen is Allen Robinson actually is getting more involved and they're using him. Can they find a way to get multiple receivers now out there and have a a couple of these guys all looking competent at the same time? Uh, We'll see. Cooper Cup is such a key to this team. I, I just I, looks him down. I mean, I know. I, I it's, it's hard. It's really hard to 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 love either side in here. I I I will say I, defense was great last year. It's been awful. You can run on them this year. Like yeah, last year that was their thing. They could stop the run. They would take There's that all away. This weird stuff with Cam Akers. Now they were going to trade him. Now he's going to come back. They're not sure what to do. I guess they said. His spirits are up. I don't know. I, I, I'd i lean Rams if you had to make a pick in this game, but I, I'm not going to make a play either way. As we move to Sunday night football, so you I'm have... A bit, I'm a little bit upset. Like, my book hasn't cashed me out for my Cam Akers under props for this season. I know, yeah, right? Seriously, might as well put that one in the book. So the Chiefs are a 12.5-point favorite over the Titans. What's crazy about this game? These are two teams that are both, they're both five and two. 
The Titans are five and two against the spread, and the Chiefs are three and four against the spread. The Chiefs lost to the Colts, who the Titans have beat, and they're a 12 and a half point dog here. But it just kind of goes to show you that the Titans are a, rel- a well coached football team. But when you dive into a lot of the metrics, they're not really fantastic or great at anything. Now, the Chiefs' offense is really starting to hum. They looked good a couple weeks ago against San Francisco. They're up to the number one offense in DVOA. They're up to number five overall. Offensive line is playing better. Mahomes looks fantastic. It's just like a weird game to me because Tennessee beat the crap out of the Chiefs last year. Um, The Chiefs got beat by 24 points. It was the worst loss of Patrick Mahomes' career. It was the third lowest passer rating he's ever had in any game. So I'm sure he probably remembers that a little bit. And I'm trying to play it out in my head. The Chiefs' defense this year is actually kind of decent. They're pretty competent. And where the Chiefs are actually, even in their strength, is against the rush. They're better defensively against the run than they are against the pass. I can't, like... I can't really see the Titans moving the ball enough. I really want to play them in this spot. I really do. Cause I'm sure you're going to give us some Vrabel stuff too. He's fantastic. in like, you know, big spots like this as a big dog, but with Tannehill being banged up, seeing what we saw from Willis last week, if this team gets down, I mean, they're in serious trouble and, and they've won five games in a row, but in those five games that they've won, They have only trailed for 36 snaps. So in all of those games, Eric, the game script was perfect for them because they could keep running the ball. If they're down 14 and all of a sudden you got to put some like Tannehill or Willis has to throw the ball with this bad offensive line, it's a stay away for me. Everyone will mention Andy Reid off the bye, 20 and three straight up, 15, seven and one. But with the Chiefs, he's only five and four. ATS in his last nine. So you don't really get that monster advantage like you might have before. Titans Chiefs, talk to us about this one. I, you know, I I locked this in at 13. Um, you know, Vrabel, he's my boy. 63% yeah. ATS as a dog, 56 as a road dog. Tennessee's defense is getting better. 10th DVOA in total defense, 15th pass, number one in run defense. Uh, Chiefs are only 17th, so I think the Titans are going to be able to lean on Henry and run the ball. Chiefs do give up the most yards to opposing running backs in the passing game. So, may like Henry's receiving yard prop is going to be like nine and a half. You know, I'm definitely going to be interested in that. But, you know, to counter your point about Andy Reid as a 10 point favorite, he's only 44% against this against the spread, so he's not covering these big numbers. Mahomes is 40% against the spread as a 10 point favorite or more. Obviously what the number decreasing is telling me is that Tannehill is going to play. Cause what we saw from Willis, he obviously wasn't ready to do anything. So I think Tannehill is going to play. You got the veteran in there. Who's been there, done that before. I absolutely love the Titans here. I locked him in at 13, anything over 10. I would, I would absolutely play. If I knew we had a healthy Tannehill, I would be on the side with you. What's it just scares me that if he's not a hundred percent healthy and we do have to have Willis in this game, I don't like their chances of 
coming back late. Like they're going to be so easy to defend. And I, I wonder if the chiefs still have a little bit of a chip from, from getting blown out last, last year, but I, I'm not laying the number with the chiefs, no way, shape or form. I would be on the Titan side. If I had to, I just, the, the health of, of Tannehill is what scares me here because Willis just did not look very good last week. And it showed you that they didn't think he was ready because he threw the ball 10 times. I think yeah. in that game, I mean, they didn't, there was one time when they threw it like 20 times. Yeah. He, uh, when they yeah, ran it 20 times, times consecutively. Yeah. Um, overall, he completed six of 10 passes for 55 yards. And yeah, I just early interception he threw, and then they kind of just wanted to play it safe. Henry was such a monster. Now he's had four straight games with 100 yards rushing. He had 219 yards rushing on 30 carries last week. And uh, he's run for 200 yards four straight times against the Texans. He just absolutely crushes you. Um, one other just kind of thing to point out about the uh, the Titans, which worries me a little bit. They've played their defense has faced the easiest schedule of offenses so far. So this will definitely be an upgrade for them facing this offense. But I mean, even like with that number, it's so big. You're, you're, the back door is always live for you. Eric's locked it in. I got to be a little bit more confident, I think, with the, the health of Tannehill before I can lock that one in. One thing Let's in go- a reminder is Derek Henry has 80, was it? 81, 86 touches the last three games. Jeez. That's absurd. That is so. It's kind of like they've kind of figured it out. Hey, give him the ball. Get out of the way. Uh, let's finish up, Eric. Ravens, Saints, Monday night football here. We're seeing the Ravens as a two and a half point favorite on the road against the Saints team. That comes off of a big victory. Felt like they got some things right. They absolutely dusted a Raiders football team. So you have the Saints who are three and five straight up and against the spread. Baltimore five and three, three, four and one against the spread in here. Talk to us about Ravens Saints. God, I want the three. I want the three so bad. I'm fine. Yeah, I agree here. Um, you know, I've been looking into this PFF stuff with the run game and everything per PFF. The Ravens have you third worst matchup. O-line to D-line in terms of the run game against the Saints front. I find that pretty amazing. The Saints are able to start, start, stop this run game, force Lamar to pass the ball without Bateman, who's out for the year. Andrews is banged up. I know Isaiah likely had a great game, but it was against the Bucs. This Bucs defense isn't as good as people think it is. Um, I like the three here, you know, going down to New Orleans, primetime game, Ravens coming off a big road win, back-to-back road games, you know, nothing, nothing to joke about by week on deck, historically kind of a flat spot. Um, yeah, I, I like it here. I think this is going to be a big Kamara game. I think he's going to be able to run. I think Dalton's going to be able to throw the ball. He's really playing well. Like he just, he was banged up. He was not healthy for a while. He just looks so much healthier. I'm uh, I'm watching as we're, rec- we're recording on Thursday night, right towards the end of the Thursday night football game. I had Miles Sanders rushing over 78 and a half yards. So I got that one, but I played the boosted one. If he gets to a hundred yards, it was two to one. He was at 97, but then he got two negative runs. They stopped him twice for oh. negative on back to back. So now I'm, I'm back down to 93. I lost four yards on a, on a couple of those. So that's probably going to make it tough to get to that boosted uh, 93, but uh 
were able to, uh, to get the over on that one, at least. Um, Eric, let's let's recap. Lions plus three and a half. Jags plus one and a half. Bears plus four and a half. Commanders plus three and a half. Saints plus two and a half. Sounds good to me, my man. Those sound like our five for this week. You can catch me and Eric again on Sunday morning, 11 o'clock a.m. Eastern time, 7 a.m. Pacific time. We will dive into all of the Sunday games. Again, we'll have up-to-date information. We'll know anything about injuries. We'll be able to talk a little bit more uh, about the numbers that have moved and, and where they've settled. Eric, what uh, what kind of stuff do you have coming up on the podcast this weekend? Um, CFL playoffs with Jim, last Nas- last NASCAR race of the year. Um, my boy Brandon has picked a winner five out of six weeks in NASCAR, which is absolutely insane. Uh, my boy David is going to come on. Him and I, we kind of do – we kind of just give our two best bets of the weekend for in terms of the NFL. And uh, I'll obviously be talking a little Kyrie in the NBA. Yeah. Kyrie suspended five games. At least I will say just a quick tidbit on that in the summer. I was very much in the, come on, trade Westbrook, go get Kyrie. I really wanted that to happen, but I will say I will take a bad player on the court any day over any day of the week over an awful human like a bad person to have to root for like Russell Westbrook, not a great fit. Some days he doesn't look good out there. Kyrie would be a better basketball fit. I am so glad as a fan, I don't have to deal with the Kyrie crap and have to have him on a team that I want to root for because this dude, man, this dude just has no clue. He just doesn't get it. He does not get it. And that is one thing as a Laker fan, I'm happy about. And you know what? Russell Westbrook, probably played two of his best games that he's played in a Laker uniform so far in the last couple. He's he's playing a little bit better off the bench, and he's got a little bit more energy. But, man, Eric and I will talk a lot of NBA once the NFL season winds down. But, uh, Eric, you can find out more about the NBA and everything going on in the world of sports on Eric's podcast. Look forward to, uh, to chatting some NFL with you on Sunday. You and I actually already recorded – our college football show, our preview show, which will run on Friday at uh, 6 o'clock p.m. Eastern time at BTV Bets. Good luck this weekend, my man. Thanks again for uh, for everything. Always appreciate all, all your help and uh, hope you, you cash all your tickets. Good luck, man. Talk to you Sunday morning. Don't go anywhere, folks. We still have a lot more to come on this episode of That's What G Said. Horse racing fans, many of us have been using the DRF, the daily racing form, for years, studying the races, keeping up to date on news with all the articles. I remember looking for a copy at the local liquor store or picking one up at the local racetrack, wherever I was going. Now it's even easier and cheaper than ever to use DRF with DRF.com and the newly optimized DRF Mobile. You can get all the tracks that you want to bet and handicap. Past performances that are mobile optimized for on-the-go handicapping on your phone. So you go to DRF.com from your mobile device, no additional cost. 
Tap the calendar icon on the top left. It opens all of the options for past performances and for the tools that are available. One click to bet now and DRF bets. Get real-time odds and scratches on race day. You can tap on any horse and you get those same DRF past performances that you're familiar with with a larger font for your mobile display. One click to formulator for charts, for replays if you get the formulator version. And even on the classic past performances, you get the home screen with horses, with odds, with buyers. You get a lifetime buyer speed figure graph. You can rotate your phone for the best view. And any horse that you click on, you'll see the running lines. You can easily move from horse to horse. The same data as those traditional classic DRF past performances. You get an interactive format, which is... Very similar to the DRF Classic version that you're used to on the desktop. Every card includes live data updated instantly with those scratches. And so you get the accessibility from desktop to phone. Cross-device functionality. You can take your notes and save them from one device to the next. And then access your account on any of your devices. On-the-go handicapping and wagering multiple formats to view you got the overview page with recent speed figures current days odds easy access to expert selections and analysis you got the buyer speed figure graph with lifetime buyer speed figures and chart notes for every horse and you got those traditional drf past performances that are just newly optimized for your mobile phones they are constantly upgrading improving and making everything easier for you to get your handicapping done at drf.com better you want to spread your pony knowledge by Download the Stable Duel app and play today. We're going to get you a couple plays for Stable Duel Contest for Saturday at Santa Anita. Also for Friday at Santa Anita, they have games. So get those entries in and play race win. Head on over to the app and check out the Stable Duel schedule. And you heard about DRF. That is the place to go when you need help with the Breeders' Cup, the Players' Package, the VIP Package, the Timeform US Package, DRF.com for all of your horse racing needs. Let's dive into some racing for Santa Anita for this weekend. Now, keep in mind, Friday, Saturday, Sunday are the last three days of the meet at Santa Anita. Santa Anita will open back up on December the 26th, but that means Saturday and Sunday are the last two of the Santa Anita Pick'em Prop Contest. Pick'em.SantaAnita.com, totally free to enter those contests. They combined, they are 12-question contests that combine props involving horse racing and involving other sports. Totally free to enter, $1,000 to the winner every Saturday, every Sunday. So you still have two chances that remain this weekend. Get involved. Enter for free. Let's talk some Santa Anita. Let's talk some Friday Santa Anita. A couple best bets on the Friday card at Santa Anita. Get those past performances out if you're looking for something to play along with the Friday Breeders' Cup. We've got a few for you at Santa Anita. And in race number three, I don't think there's very much speed in this race. I think the seven horse, Roubaix on the outside, can get the lead in here. This is a three-year-old filly who's exiting a, a pretty quick dirt sprint. And now she's going to get back to the turf. 
And I think she is the horse to catch. There's just not very much other speed. She missed the break last time out. She's going to go third start of the forum cycle. The outside draw, they will send hard. The number seven, Roubaix, who's 5-1 to one on the morning line. Anything around 7-2 to two feels like fair value there. We move to race number five on the Friday Santa Anita card. Two horses in this race are intriguing to me. The number seven, Ted, and the number eight, Box of Chocolates. Now, I think Ted might be able to get the lead on the cutback or get the lead in here for a horse who's had no problem going longer. And so if Ted gets the lead, he might be really tough to run down. He had a good start inside. He sat second, but the three horses to his outside were also flashing speed. And I think he should sit a nice trip. The eight is a bit intriguing to me. That's box of chocolates because this guy has only been on the turf once and it was really, really good. He was a runner up that day. They wheel him back. They wheeled him back quickly from September twenty uh, September 18th to September 24th, and he looked just a little flat on that September 24th race. I think it'll be a better spot for Box of Chocolates. I'll use the 7 Ted and the 8 Box of Chocolates in all exotics. Ted is 5-1, to one, Box of Chocolates is 10. More likely to bet Box of Chocolates to win there if we can get anything over 6-1. to one. In race number 3 on the Friday card, or race number 7, excuse me, on the Friday card, I like the 3 Street Humor. Street Humor had a good f- debut where he was a runner-up. In his second start, it was also very good when he finished third on the dirt. And following that, he has three races where you dive into them. I think he has some excuses. January 1st was a race that was followed by a very long layoff. And then he came back off of a long layoff and he ran like a horse who needed the race. In his most recent start on October 2nd, brutal start, hopped and he tossed his head, he broke in and it just was not the best way to go now he stretches back out I think they're going to let him loose, I expect Tyler Bays to put him right on the front end Street Humor, the number 3, 12-1 on the morning line, anything around 6 feels fair with that positional speed, let's round out the Friday card with the 10th race I like the number 6, Sydney Street, Sydney Street comes out of a race where he had a tough trip, slow start, he settled inside, he was last, he was about 15 lengths off in a race with a runoff leader, he was trapped behind horses, but he was traveling well, once he moved to the outside, he really closed well, he was only beaten about three lengths, he should get some pace to run at in here, a contested pace, where you have, you know, horses like the four Kingmeister, the five Balladeer, I'd imagine they will be flashing speed. I think from the rail draw, Royal Act will have to go. So we could see combinations of uh, a few in here all pressing the pace. Sets up nicely for Sydney Street. 8-1 to one on the morning line. Anything over 5 will make a win wager there on Sydney Street. So that's Friday, Santa Anita. Let's move to Saturday, Santa Anita. Give you another compliment when you're playing the Breeders' Cup races on Saturday. Here's another uh, look at a track to play and uh, and get a little action. Santa Anita Saturday, get those past performances out. Three plays for Saturday, Santa Anita, November the 5th. Let's look at races 5, 6, and 10. So in the 5th race, I'm looking at the number 6, DDS Express. And DDS Express has a couple races that I think you can you know kind of make a couple excuses for. Most recently, they tried the turf, didn't run on it at all. Just put a line right through. And let's go back to September 10th when DDS Express had a good start, was right with the leaders, but then kind of dropped back a little bit, got caught wide and in between. That was against Open Company. Now cuts back 
and now faces Calbreds. And I think he'll be more forwardly placed and have a little more finish in here. He's 15 to 1 on the morning line. That's a big price on the number six DDS Express. We'll be using in all exotics. In race number six, looking at the number one in here, Fantastic. Fantastic comes out of a six and a half furlong race down the hill where he had a slow start. He was last. He was about eight lengths off of it. He moved to the inside and he really started making up ground in a close finish when he was fifth, but he was only beaten just over a length that day. I think Fantastic will perform well in here. I think he comes into this race nicely, and I expect him to take a step forward, second start off the bench. Final play for Santa Anita Saturday in the 10th race. It's the number 8 in here, Moria Time. And, you know, looking at this one, 8-1 to on the morning line, she was a step slow in her only start. It was going along on the turf, which is never easy, and she got steadied when the rival inside of her shifted out it forced this filly to settle way farther back than she would have liked. She was 10-plus off. And, you know, she was a little green late, but she showed some ability making up ground and getting back into contention. And the race came back live. The two horses who finished first and second both came out of that race to win their next start. One of them went up to Golden Gate and won a stakes. I like Moria Time. Moria Time. 8-1 to one on the morning line. Anything over 5 will make a win wager there. So some Friday and Saturday Santa Anita. Don't forget about the Pick'em Santa Anita contest. Pick'em.SantaAnita.com. Totally free to enter. $1,000 in prizes to the winner on Saturday and on Sunday. Up next, we get to hear from one of the sponsors of That's What G Said podcast, Cindy Carava. She's a full-service realtor, and she wants to let you know what things are like in the market right now. Those of you who are looking and maybe interested in buying and are and or selling, Cindy lets us know how things are going, where it's trending, and she just gives us some incredible information that will really help save you some money. Cindy Carava, full-service realtor. We have an interview with her. We talk for about 15, 20 minutes with Cindy, finding all out about the market and how things are going. You really want to listen into this. It's going to help you in the next coming weeks and months when you try to figure out what you want to do, relocating, investing, properties, Cindy Carava helping us out. Always have to check in with uh, Cindy Carava every couple of months or so. The longtime sponsor of That's What G Said podcast. She is a full service realtor. And that means if you need anything in the world of real estate, she can help you out. Anything at all, honestly, buying, selling, leasing. If you need to upgrade your current home and you're looking to connect with certain types of vendors, gardeners, landscapers, painters, she can check that box for you. If you need help with the loan process, she'll connect you with the right type of lenders. That'll make things a little bit easier for you there. And look at that smile. One of the kindest and most genuine people you will ever meet. So Cindy, um, now everybody knows how you can help them, but we always like to check in to kind of talk about some specifics, see how things have changed in the last couple months with the market overall. How are you doing? And uh, and talk to us about how things are going in your world. Ah, well, um, hi, Gino. It's so good to be on your show again. Um, I always love uh, bringing value to your clients. Uh, and your listeners, um, as well as, you know, just the general public. So things are good. Um, things are really good. You know, just had a great Halloween with some friends and looking forward to the to the holidays coming up and always gets to be a little bit crazy time of year, but um, everything is great. So um, 
Yeah, I mean, to answer your question, you know, things are a little little different now in the, in the real estate market. So honestly, uh, we kind of talked a little bit off air about this as, you know, probably one of the biggest, you know, questions I get is, or actually statements is, you know, people come up to me and say, you know, I'm just going to wait right now um, with the real estate market. You know, I'm just going to wait it out because, you know, it's going to crash. You know, uh, the market's going to crash like it did in 2008. And, and honestly, you're going to be waiting for a long time. It's not going to be crashing. And, and I want to share that with you, everybody, all the viewers and all the listeners out there that, you know, we're not going to see a crash. Um, and, and there's three reasons why. Um, one of them is um, it used to be back in, you know, 2008, you know, 2007, 2008, it was super easy to get a loan. You know, Gino, literally, they, if you had a black shirt on, you got a loan. You know, um, it's kind of you have a black shirt on today. I was gonna say, <laughs> good thing that I'm, I'm, I'm wearing, yeah. But yeah. that, but unfortunately, like you're gonna say, that's back to the future, right? That's not the case yes. anymore. No, Nowadays, definitely it's not the case. It is much different. harder to get a loan because the lending standards are a lot, lot tighter, and so for a good reason too. So we're not gonna see people getting bad loans out there anymore, which is really, really good. The second reason why we are not going to be uh, in a market or a housing crash is because 2008, 2009, 2007, there was a ton of homes on the market during that time. And remember what we said in earlier, you know, podcasts was, you know, a healthy market, we should have about a six month supply of homes for sale. During 2007, 2008, when things went haywire, we had a 10 month supply of homes on the market. So way higher than the normal healthy market. So that's why we had a huge crash. There were so many homes on the market. Currently right now, we've got about a three month supply. So we are still historically low on inventory and what is on the market right now. So definitely a difference of what it was when it did crash. We had a huge amount of homes on the market then, we do not now. So we are not going to see the same results as we did. And the third reason um, that why we're not going to have a, you know, a housing market crash like everybody's talking about is because homeowners now have so much equity in their homes. Um, so if they, you know, lose a job, unfortunately, or something shifts in their life uh, where they have to sell, they can sell and they can still make money. The percentage of people that don't have equity in their homes from when they bought, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago is so minimal. So we're going to see a lot less foreclosures in the market than and then when uh, before COVID, when they were kind of predicting what was going to be happening in the next few years. So those three things alone, you know, are definitely um, why we're not going to see a, a housing crash or a market crash. And, and um, that's a real key thing because, right, it's all right. of these variables that came together to create the crash at the same time where you have bad loans that were given out and then a ton of houses that are out there available for those bad loans. Like all these things that sort of add up together to create that crash that none of those are happening None of those exist right now. No, not no, even individually, exactly. let alone all together yeah. where they were like right. 15 years ago or so when that happened. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and I know everyone says, you know, well, you know, the experts are predicting this and their experts, you know, are predicting that. Well, you know, that's great. But remember when you're hearing those headlines on the news at night or you're reading that in your local newspaper, remember those statements are across the country. 
you have to know what is local to your market. Because I can definitely tell you, a lot of states are affected by what is happening in the market right now. And, you know, it is cooling. The market is cooling. It is not the frenzy that it was the last year to two years, you know. California, you know, we've been okay, you know what I mean? But I can definitely tell you that homes in Arizona, homes in Nevada, especially around Las Vegas, homes in Florida, homes in Idaho, Colorado, Utah, Texas for sure. Those areas, they are, you know, we are, they are seeing, you know, a different market there. But as again, like I said, you know, you've you've got to take those headlines you're seeing in the news and the headlines you're reading in the newspaper with a grain of salt because they are giving an average over the entire country, not for the local market, you know? Um, so always keep that in mind when you're, when you're reading that, you know, what's nice, and Cindy too, just to not to interrupt, but what's nice, no. you specialize in California and in Southern California, but I was just going through some of your social media posts earlier. And I always like to point out to everyone that just like you were saying, you have connections all over and you have feelers and really a really good pulse on what things are like everywhere. So if it's a place that, you know, you can help someone, if not, you can put them in touch with someone in that area who can answer any questions that they have and give them very accurate information. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Because I, you're right. You know, I'm only licensed in the state of California. So I actually just recently had a client that lives here close to me in Glendora and he wanted to buy an investment property in Arizona. And of course, A, I can't sell there because I'm not licensed there, but B, I don't know the market there. So I put him in touch with one of my good friends and a Remax agent in, in the Phoenix area of Arizona. And they actually just closed escrow on a house. So you're right, Gino, no matter where you are in the country, where you are in the world, I have uh, friends and colleagues all over that can help my clients. And obviously, you know, I want to put my clients or anybody, you know, in the best hands, you know, as possible. And if it's not here in California, it's somewhere else. That's totally fine. I can hook them up. Uh, no problem anywhere. So that's really great to know for sure. Thank you. So yeah. anyway, what I was going to say is, you know, like I said, as you know, we all are seeing kind of this, you know, this cooling market, it doesn't mean that we have to be afraid of what's going on or afraid to act upon it. You know, I mean, because there is some good news. So, yay, let's yeah. get to the good news here. You know, so if you're thinking about selling, um, it is basically still a really, really good time to sell, especially during the holidays, um, because I will tell you why you are not competing with a lot of other uh, sellers out there. Most sellers don't want to put their houses on the market because with the holidays coming, you know, they're like, I've got family coming in or I'm going to be out of town, stuff like that. Wait till after the new year. How many people say that about everything, everything, right? Exactly. Wait till after the new year. Yeah. And you know what? If you wait till after the new year, you're going to be competing with everybody else. Mm -hmm. And you may not get that top dollar because you are competing with everybody else. So if you're thinking about selling, really now is the time to be doing so, you know, especially, and especially, especially during if you're the someone holidays. who has like multiple properties, right? Yes. If you're, because if you are someone to where you don't have to have that kind of worry about, oh yeah, I don't want to be maybe thinking about being out of the house during the holiday. But if you have another property or maybe you're looking to upgrade, just it's a good t- chance, especially if you're not someone who, you know, are thinking about that as a, a situation. So I never really thought about that, but it makes total sense. It's it's really logical and kind of basic when you think about it. 
Right. Yeah, because you want to get ahead of all those other sellers. So doing so now before the before next year, it, you know, and the pricing is still good out there. You know, we we're still seeing good prices out there, you know, um, you know, and, um, you know, there's still buyers out there. I still have buyers that are wanting to get into homes right now, you know, but, you know, we're still like I said earlier, inventory is low. There's still not a lot of houses on the market. So right now still is a really, really good time to sell. And remember, what's the most important if you are going to be selling is pricing your home accurately the first time out of the starting gate, a little horse racing in there for you. Yep. Um, because, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Because, um, you know, I, a lot of sellers think they can get uh, what they what their neighbor got six months ago. And that's not not the the issue or not, not the market right now. So it's so important to really know your market, what is going out on right now and pricing it according to the first time. Um, because you you know what you don't want to see is pricing it too high. You don't get traffic to your house. You don't get anybody at your open houses. You're not getting any offers. And then now you've got to, you know, bring down your price, you know, and that that's always such a hard thing, you know, for a seller to handle, you know, or to, you know, to accept. So, like I said, pricing it the first time right is just so key. You know, the other thing is, too, is making sure your home is market ready. You know, you've got great curb appeal. You've decluttered your home. You know, you fixed minor repairs maybe that you were putting off. Get those done, you know, before your house goes on the market. You know, if it needs to be staged, you talked about some of the vendors I can offer. That is one of them, staging, you know, and making sure you take professional photography I actually have a great photographer I work with, you know what I mean? So all those things really help sell your house and bring it into the best light possible. So yes, now is a good time to still be selling. And think about what she just said. She can do all of those things for you, connect you with all of those different people to make your life that much easier. You're not going to have to worry about doing that individually yourself, going out and taking the pictures, looking at the angles. These are people that do these things for you. They know exactly what they're going to do, right? It's not something that is so stressed. It's one of the most stressful things is the whole relocating, moving, yes. all of this stuff. And and it's so nice as a full service realtor to see all of the things you can do, not only just the big, big stuff, but all of the things along the way, heck, even yeah. if someone just wants to see, Hey, how much is my home worth right now? Right. Where do I stack up market analysis, that type of thing. Right. Um, you're always looking to help let someone know, Hey, here's where you are. Here's what the market looks like. This is where it's trending. Now is the right time to sell or to yeah. buy or to make a move. Right. No, exactly. Gino. Yeah. And I do that all the time for clients, you know, you know, you may not be ready to sell or buy right now, but especially selling right now, but you're thinking about it, you know, let me do a market analysis for you. It's free. It's easy for me to do, you know, and then you can make an informed decision of what you want to do, you know, and I can provide, you know, like, you know, nobody has a crystal ball of what's going to happen, but, you know, I can definitely say here, here's what it was six months ago. Here's what it was three months ago. Here's what we are today. You know, I mean, I said, and, you know, it just gives people more tools and more education to make the best informative decision they can. So, so with that good news, I also have good news for buyers. Um, so it is still a good time to be buying. Um, and because right now, especially during the holidays, um, as we were for sellers, there's less competition. A lot of buyers don't want to be buying right now because, they don't want to be looking at houses because they are going out of town. They are going on family trips or they just, you know what, we're just too busy with the holidays. We don't want to be out there. But guess what? 
if you are a buyer, now is a good time to be looking again because you are in less competition with other buyers out there. So would you, you're saying like the next two months in particular, right? Yes. Like leading into yes. the new year? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and one of the other things we're seeing, you know, right now is we're not seeing the bidding wars, you know, that we saw back six, nine months ago, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're also seeing where, you know, negotiations are a little bit more common, you know, with buyers, you know, I mean, so if you've got an appraisal that maybe didn't come back at the, the price that you're going to be paying, you know, or maybe you had a home inspection, you know, on a home you purchased and there were some things wrong with it that you want to see fixed. Well, nine months, a year ago, you couldn't ask for that. You had to take basically homes as is, you know, but now with the changing market that we're in, the cooling market that we're in, buyers actually have a little bit more negotiating power right now, which is really good for buyers right now. So, um, so there are some, like I said, there is some good news for buyers as well. One of the other topics, obviously, is it comes to mind actually because with the Feds uh, yesterday um, raising rates yesterday a little bit, um, you know, what are where are there, you know, where are the rates going? You know, everybody's worried about the rates. You know, uh, you know, you really shouldn't be worried about the rates right now. Um, yes, they are around seven, maybe a little more, and they kind of creep up there. You know, and obviously it depends on you know what your credit score is, you know, and how much you're putting down that determines, you know, what rate you're getting, you know, but, you know, the good news is um, with all loans out there is that there's good news here. And there's a lot of different programs. Like I was just talking to one of my lenders just about an hour ago um, because there's, you know, everybody thinks there's just the normal, you know, loans out there. You know, I'm putting 20% down, I'm getting this rate, or I'm putting 10% down, I'm getting this rate, you know, well, there's a lot of little behind the scene things that, you know, we can do as agents and, you know, lenders can do as lenders, you know, and one of them, I, she was telling me is that you can buy down your interest rates. There's a temporary way of doing it and there's a permanent way of doing it. And a lot of people that this is going to be a different way of getting an offer accepted and, and, and making it where the sellers are happy and the buyers are happy. So You know, if you are listening to this podcast and you're hearing this and you don't know about this, you know, please reach out to me. I can put you in touch with my lenders and they can explain, you know, some of the different programs out there that are a little different. They're a little out of the box than we're used to. But right now to get people and to get buyers into homes, we are having to think a little creatively how to best help our clients. So whether that's the seller or the buyer. And it doesn't matter what your interests are, what your field is. Everybody needs the home. This is information that is very, very important to everyone all over the place, like we said. And it's not right now that we're even talking specifically relevant market stuff to just Southern California. This is stuff that is relevant to you wherever you are. And like I said, if you just reach out to Cindy and you you, you know try to get in contact with her to ask a few questions, that is why the information you're finding out right now, all these little things that she can help you with. She can save you a few dollars here. She can save you some time. Yeah, she can save you some energy, <laughs> right? And that, like, that is what she is here to do to make your life easier. Whether the times are great, maybe a year or two ago, things looked a little bit better. Who knows? And Or maybe like right now, it's going to be a little bit tougher, but it's not doom and gloom, right? No, There's a reason to have optimism. Still on, yeah, on it's whatever side you're on. 
Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, we kind of the mem that's been going around in the real estate world lately is, you know, marry the house, date the rate. And basically, that means, you know, like, don't, you know, don't worry so much about the interest rate because get into a house because you'd rather see your money going into your home, into something you own, yeah. than paying that rent to somebody else and putting money in the landlord's pocket, you know. Because we are hoping, yes, we are higher interest rates than we were a year ago, but we are hoping as time goes on um, and, the, and the economy gets better, that rates are going to come back down. You know what I mean? So, you know, you can refinance your house. It does, just because you're in this rate right now, and maybe it's at too high of interest rate right now, we are hoping that in a year's time, rates are going to be a lot lower and then you can refinance and get take that break and get a better you know, interest rate. So that's what marry the house date the rate means. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of that right now. Um, you know, market, local market. I can tell you right now, you know, in Glendora, I was just on the multiple listing service to see, you know, between houses, condos and townhomes, we've got about 77 homes for sale. That's it. 77 that is not very many at all so um you know we are it's still a little better than it was a few months ago but we are still like i said significantly low on inventory so it is still a good time to buy and sell and if um any of the viewers or listeners out there are thinking about buying or selling or like gino said just want to know what their home is worth you know please feel free to reach out to me um, I'm always happy to help um, everybody um, out there. No problem. CindyCarava.com, C-I-N-D-Y-C-A-R-A-V-A.com. That's the website. And that's like, that's the command center, right? That's where they can find everything yeah. out there. Best way to get in touch with you, find some of the listings. You can also find uh, reviews from some of her former clients on uh, on yep. any of the sites, Yelp, Zillow, places like that, that have worked with her. And if you follow Cindy on social media, she does a great job. Um, I love the, just the tidbits that you give out throughout the week, right? Just the g little bits of information that are great reminders because, you know, you go through a week or two, everybody's busy. You've got your kids, you've got your family, you've got everything going on. And you, you maybe, maybe just something slips your mind. You forget about it. But if we're following you, you're just reminding us, you're, you're giving us more aware of, Hey, if you need help on this or don't forget you know, this season's coming up now, they're changing. This might be something to do. I, I always think that's really interesting. And I think you give, you provide really nice little helpers for people that follow along with you. Oh, thank you, Gino. Yeah, I try to do as much, you know, education as I can, because I think, you know, the, the public, you know, just needs those tools of understanding what's going on, you know, whether it's in the market or terms, uh, you'll see a lot of on my, my social media, I'll have, you know, certain terms so people can understand what that means, you know, so when they're, going through this, you know, because it, it is scary and it is overwhelming. And, you know, and if you don't know the terminology or, or that we use, you know, um, it can be a little overwhelming. So I try to every once in a while I'll do a little tidbit about, you know, what this word means or what that this pertains to and stuff like that. So and I hope that really helps people out there. The reason why we do these are because you should not feel stupid asking any questions no. about this stuff oh, gosh, at all, no. No, no, especially no. when this is something that is so important and serious dealing with like your home and a lot of your money. If you, if you're not sure about something, just ask, that's all like, don't, yeah. don't feel like it's something you should know, or oh, I'm supposed no. to know. Like, yeah. Don't think that at all. That's why we're here. That's why we do these, like, these series of videos just to make sure that everyone out there is as, as informed as possible before you make these big 
life-changing decisions, right? These are huge yeah. decisions that you're going to make a lot of the time where you're going to move with you and your family, all the money that you, you put in, you know, that you saved up, that you work for, you want to make sure that you're making the smart decision. And, yeah. um, and that's what Cindy will help you do. Um, we'll go to the website, Cindy Anything else you want to mention before we get out of here, Cindy? Nope. Um, just, um, just everybody have a fabulous day and, uh, you can also call or text me. Uh, my number is 626-394-6400. Uh, Gino did mention my website and my email. So either of those three ways you can get a hold of me. No problem. Um, so anyway, have a great day, everyone. If we don't talk before, we'll catch up with you again right after the new year. And we'll see yes. how things have shifted. But if we, if not, maybe we'll uh, we'll talk with you again. I know I'll talk with you again before then uh, uh, in the holidays course, yes. uh, coming up. So thanks so much. Tell the family and everybody hello, and uh, we'll see you again real soon. Great. Thank you, Gino. Have a great day. Thanks so much, folks. Uh, we played this on social media. If you're watching it on either Twitter or Instagram or YouTube, Facebook also was having it as a recording on the podcast. So if you were just listening to the audio version on the podcast, we have a lot more coming up on this episode of That's What G Said. So stay tuned. So much great information from Cindy there. She's going to help all of us save some money. She's going to give us the the little tidbits of information that we need in order to uh, in order to really make the right correct accurate decisions with uh with our homes with relocating with buying with selling that's cindy carava let's shift on over and start talking some wrestling our buddy chad cooper wasn't able to join us this week but you can hear chad here each and every week on that's what g said and this is a, a fun week with wwe crown jewel coming up on saturday remember it's early in the morning and there have been some scary information out there that Saudi Arabia, there was possibly a, an attack planned on them from Iran, and some, some of these WWE superstars are traveling out there. They weren't sure what was going to happen, but all reports are that the show is still going to go on this week. Here is what is set up for the Crown Jewel show. Alexa Bliss and Asuka, your new women's tag team champions, they play. Uh, they will be facing Damage Control, Dakota Sky and EO, Dakota Kai and EO Sky. This is a rematch from Monday Night Raw. When Alexa and Asuka beat the women's tag team champions. The Usos versus the Brawling Brutes for the Undisputed Tag Team Championship. think the Usos will probably get the job done there. feel like Alexa and Asuka probably hold on to theirs. Bianca Bailey in the last woman's standing match. It's weird to me that they've kind of kept going back to Bailey. It really doesn't feel like it's her time, but in a match like this, it's an easy way for them to have Bianca lose without getting pinned. I would not be shocked if it's Bailey there. Braun Strowman versus Omos in a singles match. You have Drew McIntyre versus Karrion Cross in a steel cage. I've been a little disappointed with Karrion Cross's in-ring work. I think the presentation has been pretty good. He was a his match on SmackDown was just the crowd was not into it. They didn't seem all that excited. Now this will probably be different with uh with Drew inside a cage. Brock Lesnar versus Bobby Lashley has had a really fun buildup on Monday Night Raw. These two hosses have been going at each other. We've really been waiting for this match for a while. We didn't get the chance to see it fully at the Royal Rumble because it was more of a storyline. Now we have two baby faces and these two guys are just going to go at it. This should be a fun match. I'm really looking forward to this one. The OC, 
AJ Styles, Luke Gallows, and Carl Anderson versus The Judgment Day, Finn Balor, Damian Priest, and Dominic Mysterio. And they've teased that the OC may get a girl to help them counter Rhea Ripley. Did they go get a Liv Morgan or someone like that to help them stand in their corner and fight off Rhea Ripley if need be? Roman Reigns versus Logan Paul in the main event. I mean, I, I can't imagine Logan Paul wins this match. I understand why they're doing it. And they're trying to they're trying to make you think that Logan has a chance setting it up, letting us know that he has uh, steel plates and screws in his hand and with just one punch he could knock Roman Reigns out. I just I don't see it happening. Gives them some good buzz, but Logan should be in a heel role. He's not great here as like a conquering hero babyface. It just doesn't it's disingenuous. Other stuff from WWE throughout the week. We had the bloodline. Sammy and Solo lose to the Brawling Brutes, and that's what gave the Brawling Brutes an opportunity to get the shot at the tag team championships there. We uh it, the bloodline, Sami Zayn, Jey Uso, Roman Reigns storyline is fantastic. Sami Zayn, it's so good that they've kept it going and they've actually kept Kevin Owens off TV because they're waiting for Kevin Owens. They have big plans for him, but the plans are when Sami leaves the bloodline or the bloodline turns on Sami and then Kevin Owens and Sami can link back up as best buds. Right now, I think everybody loves seeing Sami in the bloodline and and how they interact. It's really funny. Great stuff there from... uh, you know, maybe we're going to get a Sammy Uso coming up. The We've got a quick little video package about the Viking Raiders along with Sarah Logan. little tease as she's coming back. The New Day pick up the win over the Maximum Male Models. we got another little vignette about LA Knight. And in, uh, in a backstage promo, LA Knight was interrupted by Ricochet. So perhaps we'll see those two link up in uh, in the near future. Braun Strowman cut a promo talking about Omos, and then Ronda Rousey came out for her open challenge, and Emma is back. Nice to see Emma back. She's really good in the ring. Emma was one of the first women in the women's revolution where she can really go if they find a good character for her. She's someone who absolutely has a role and has a spot on this roster. Great to see Emma back. She had a a pretty good match. Against Ronda, Ronda picks up the win. The Legado del Fantasma made their entrance, and Legado del Fantasma and Hit Row had a match that Hit Row picks up the win. Hit Row needed a special guest partner, and they selected Shinsuke Nakamura, who helped them pick up the win. So these two teams will be feuding for a bit. Other stuff from SmackDown that's worth mentioning. Let's see here. Yeah, we talked about LA Knight and Ricochet. They're setting up a match for next week. The Madcap Moss carry and cross match that was just kind of felt like it was dragging and it just it was slow, kind of plotting there. Bray Wyatt comes out, cuts a promo as Bray Wyatt. Talks about how this is new to him. There's no mask, nothing for him to hide behind. And then a video shows up on the Jumbotron. It cuts him off, and it's Mr. Howdy. 
He says he's a ghost of the man who cured the world, of course. You're a fool. You cured the world. So it looks like Uncle Howdy is a new Bray Wyatt alter ego. And Bray Wyatt looks like he will continue to feud with himself here. I love this version of Bray Wyatt. It's so unique. It's so different. It's so interesting. I don't know where they're going. They continue to set up the Intercontinental Championship match. Gunther versus Rey Mysterio. That was SmackDown from earlier this week. Over on Monday Night Raw, it was the final build to WWE Crown Jewel. Bianca Belair beat Nikki Cross to open the show. And I wonder why you put Nikki in this spot. If you bring her back, why do you want her to lose immediately to Bianca? If you want Bianca to look strong, you can't have someone else in there for Bianca to get a win over? I just think you, you feel like you throw a little bit of of water on, on Nikki right off the bat. Now after the match, Bailey and Damage Control attack Alexa, or attack Bianca, and that's when Asuka and Alexa come out. And they had not been around for the last month. So Asuka and Alexa are back. And then out of nowhere... They just kind of demand a a tag team title shot. They want a tag team title match. They get one. And they end up winning the tag team titles at the end of the night. It's kind of weird. I wonder why they didn't promote the match. Bobby Lashley and Brock Lesnar were supposed to have a sit-down interview. And when Bobby was sitting down, Brock Lesnar comes out. Um, Lashley called Brock a Bobby Lashley wannabe. But these two were needing to be pulled apart in the arena. Triple H actually comes down there and he's yelling, If they touch, then their fight is off. And it was cool. It was a cool brawl scene. I think the build-up to this match has been really fun. I'm very much looking forward to Bobby Lashley and Brock Lesnar at Crown Jewel. Seth Rollins, in theory, had a very good match. This was one of Theory's best matches. And Seth Rollins... Worked like a babyface, which was really fun to see. Seth Rollins picks up the win there over Theory. And we got a a commercial that let us know that Bray Wyatt will be at Crown Jewel this weekend. So we will see Bray Wyatt at Crown Jewel. Up next, Roman Reigns comes out with Paul Heyman. They were just trying to build up the, the match against Logan Paul this week. And Paul Heyman talked about how... Logan Paul's been training, and he's been training with HBK. The Miz actually comes out, and The Miz talks about Logan Paul, and he mentions that Logan does have the screws in his hand, and Miz was out there basically to just kind of put over that Logan might be able to to land a punch on Roman, and this was a way for Roman to land a punch on Miz, and Roman said, all of you are talking about Logan knocking me out? Well, I'm going to knock him out. We got the Superman punch on The Miz. Following that, the Judgment Day, Damian Priest faced Carl Anderson in a match that was won by Carl Anderson. Just a a backslide roll-up after seven minutes. Nothing too crazy there. After the match, we got a bunch of fighting between the groups. Gallows, Dominic, and the Judgment Day took care of AJ Styles. And uh, Dominic goes up to the top, he hits a frog splash, and they mentioned how Rhea Ripley was the X-Factor, so they continue to tease that the OC is going to need to enlist the services of someone to help them counter Rhea Ripley. 
continuing along on Raw. We had Omos backstage, just continuing to set up his match with Braun this weekend. And then we had JBL come out, and he was Texas, so he was going to get a big response. He said it was great to be in the Lone Star State. He talked about all the different sports teams, catchphrases, how about them Cowboys. He mentioned the Von Ericks and Stone Cold and he talked about the greatness of Texas and then the current generation has ruined it. He it was a good heel promo. He talked about how Halloween is people begging for food and not a single one of yourselves should be allowed to call yourself a Texan. They disgust him. Good heat from JBL and uh all it did was lead to our truth coming out and uh, JBL and Corbin hitting truth from behind in the end of days. Nothing much. Just some way a way to get some heat on JBL. It was, it was a good heat spot. We had the trick or street fight with Matt Riddle and Otis. Otis and Chad Gable were dressed up like the uh, the Chippendales uh Strippers from the Saturday Night Live segment years back with Patrick Swayze and Chris Farley. So that made me laugh. I don't know how much of the younger generation knew what they were doing, but I got a chuckle out of that. And Matt Riddle picks up the win there. Ezekiel was in his corner, and Riddle gets the win over Otis. Miz had a match against Mustafa Ali. Miz was defeated. By Ali, who kind of keeps himself in that U.S. title range. Uh, Ali gets the win at around 10 minutes. We then had a segment called WWE Investigates. It was a Johnny Gargano tell-all interview. Basically, Johnny Gargano told us what's been happening recently with Dexter Loomis. He let us know that all of this was a ploy. All of this was a plot by Miz. Miz just wanted a stalker. He's a celebrity. He wanted a stalker to remain relevant. And Miz was paying Dexter Loomis to fake stalk him. At some point, Miz stopped paying Loomis. Loomis got mad. And he went rogue. The segment was a little goofy. I like that they're giving Johnny something to do, though. And it, what they did was they explained why this has been happening and what's been going on. So I thought they did a pretty good job in that sense. With uh, with explaining the Gargano uh, stuff with the with the Miz, and then our women's tag team championship was the main event. We had Alexa and Asuka pick up the win over Dakota and Io. So we have new women's tag team champions so far, and it's uh, Asuka and Alexa. Asuka has now been a women's tag team champion with Kyrie Sane, Charlotte, and now Alexa Bliss. So that was Monday Night Raw. Let's make the move on over to NXT. So over on NXT, we had Braun Breaker kick off the show. Braun coming off uh, a successful title defense uh, over the last few weeks. Braun Breaker and Wes Lee were out there uh, to kick it off. So Braun just sort of talked about how everyone uh, was successful himself. Julius Creed, Wes Lee. Then he was interrupted by Pretty Deadly. That ended up setting up a tag team championship match for later on in, in the night where we had... Braun Breaker and Wes Lee try to become double champions. They took on Pretty Deadly in the main event. Now, I guess we can kind of cover this at the same time. In that main event, we had a good tag team match that ended 
with Pretty Deadly getting the win because of some outside interference there. We uh, we had Carmelo Hayes come down, distract Wes Lee, and following that, we also had Von Wagner come out after the match. So Pretty Deadly pick up the win. It looks like Wes Lee will have a, a match and a feud with Carmelo continuing on, and it looks like Braun will have to deal with Von Wagner. He just doesn't do it for me. Doesn't do it for me. Now, other uh, important things from NXT. Hopefully our truth is okay. It looked like there was a, a scary incident where he he had a serious injury in a match that was real. It wasn't like an angle they were playing up in here. Uh, ref's decision, Grayson Waller picks up the victory there. So fingers crossed we'll, uh, we'll hope for our truth He's 50 years old. He's in fantastic shape. We hope it's not a serious type injury because he... Is so entertaining and still does a great job, and he has a, a place on WWE TV for sure. We then had an interview with Schism. Joe Gacy, Rip Fowler, Jagger Reed, and Ava Rain all sat down, and Ava Rain is the daughter of The Rock. She made her debut last week, and she talked about how she's been around WWE her whole life, and nobody took the time to get to know her except for these guys. And she said uh, she started at WWE and she had a bad injury and Joe Gacy would come and check on her and nobody else cared. And I like the, the story that they told. They they didn't mention The Rock, but they absolutely referenced her family, who people think she is, that people want something for, from her. And the one thing I'll, I'll note about her, she seems very comfortable. So, intriguing. All of a sudden, in just a few weeks, Joe Gacy, he's a lot more interesting now. Lots of little things throughout the night. We had uh, uh, Nofe and Malik Blade with Javi uh, backstage, and Javi had a match against Odyssey Jones, who pops back up, and Odyssey Jones gets a squash win over Javi Bernal later on the card. Kiana James and Tia Hale. Kiana James faced Tia Hale in a one-on-one. Uh, Tia Hale, you had Kiana James pick up the win. And keep in mind that Bodie from Chase U has now been released. Other stuff on NXT. They had Mandy Rose's one-year championship celebration, and it was interrupted by Alba Fire. I just, I don't think Alba Fire is a really strong contender. I don't feel she just doesn't feel over and. Now they're going back to her for another match. If she, for some reason, beats Mandy for this title, it doesn't really make sense. I think there are a lot of other stronger contenders that you could go to right now. So, yeah, not I, not a fan of Alba Fire in, uh, interfering and interrupting here, but I thought Mandy did a fantastic job talking about how it's been the last year. She came back down to NXT. She rejuvenated her career. She became... Much better in ring. Great stuff from Mandy. Paulo Cruz is trying to get a, a championship match with Braun Breaker, but he has to wait in line behind Von Wagner right now. It looks as if Braun may have a match or a, a feud with JD McDonough because we saw them uh, cross paths backstage. Indy Hartwell picked up a win over Zoe Stark which feels like it's continuing along the story of Zoe and Nikita. I feel like they'll probably fail in their tag team title match and then turn on each other, and we'll get a Zoe-Nikita match out of that. 
We had a video talking about uh, an NXT superstar wanting to make their return. And this should be Donovan Dijak. Backstage segment where Songa says that he can't come out ringside with anyone anymore. Songa has a, had a heel turn now. Him and Veer Mahan are a team. Cora Jade picked up a quick win. Just wanted to make her look strong after she lost a few weeks back. And it looks like she's going to have a, a new feud with Wendy Chu. Tony D was with Channing Stax Lorenzo. And Tony D's kind of cooled off uh, a bit as of late. They haven't had a whole lot for him. He's been he's been hurt, so they're trying to keep him on. But after the Legato del Fantasma stuff, it just it kind of went on too long, and they've they've struggled with his character as of late. The NXT Championship match was the main event there, and pretty deadly picked up the victory. So a lot of uh, a lot of feuds being set up, a lot of groundwork being laid for the future. And for the coming weeks, that was NXT. Let's head over to AEW Dynamite. This was a bizarre show. So we opened things up with Orange Cassidy defending the All-Atlantic title. And actually, first thing we have, those are some of the highlights on the show. Cassidy, Jericho, some of the matches. But first up, we had Darby. And Darby was taped up. It was Darby versus Jay Lethal. Jay Lethal gets the victory after... Some outside shenanigans here. So Lethal gets the win over Darby. Match was fine. And then Sting's music hit. So it looks like Sting was going to come out. And under the Sting mask, it was Cole Carter. And the crowd didn't really even know who it was. And then following that, Jeff Jarrett comes out. And hits Darby Allen with a guitar. Darby got busted open. And now Jeff Jarrett will be an executive in AEW. He cut a promo and uh, talked about his family being in the wrestling business. I mean, it was fine. Jeff Jarrett's going to get heat. I don't mind him having a role behind the scenes. It just feels weird that you'd they'd want to bring him out on AEW when they're so they have such a packed roster that people are trying to get TV time, and then you've got Jeff Jarrett coming out here. I don't know. So. We have a, a video. They've, they've shown these videos now where they're showing the Elite winning the tag team titles and then they remove the Elite from the graphics. It's like a weird Back to the Future thing. The file is called Elite the Delete. John Moxley has a match with Lee Moriarty. It's one of these world title eliminators. I hate these. On WWE, AEW, anywhere. I don't like the idea of having a match against the world champ, having to beat them to then get another match against them. That doesn't make sense. There should be a number one contenders match to then get a match with the champ. When you wrestle the champ, it should almost always be for the title or a non-title match that's fine, but it shouldn't be an eliminator match. I just It seems bizarre. I don't like the idea of these. I hate it when WWE does it, and I don't like it when AEW does it either. Now, during this match, Ethan Page was on commentary, and it feels like he's getting ready for a push. Apparently, there's going to be a tournament leading into full gear. Haven't really announced the participants in the tournament, but if I had to predict, just based on this episode, it would probably be Ethan Page as the winner of that thing. He feels like he's being set up for 
a possible feud with either Moxley or with MJF. Soraya, former Paige, sat down for an interview with Renee Paquette. She just didn't say much here. Renee asked if Soraya can wrestle, and she said she's going to save this for next week because there's one more doctor she wants to talk with. Lamar Jackson was in the crowd as uh, they were, Lamar and a couple others were ringside. Tony Schiavone interviewed William Regal, talking about MJF and how he has a long way to go to be a true villain. We didn't see MJF on the on the show. Fun segment was the Daddy Ass Birthday Bash, where the acclaimed Max Caster, Anthony Bowens, and Billy Gunn came out to celebrate Billy Gunn's birthday. They have scissor foam fingers now, and they you know what they got a little bit emo and really thanked Billy Gunn for taking them under his wing. Of course, that led to the Gun Club, the actual sons of Billy Gunn coming out because the acclaimed wants to be adopted by Billy Gunn. So, I mean, this was a little bit goofy, but it was it was fun. Crowd loved it. This group is over. Dr. Britt Baker, DMD, and Jamie Hayter had a quick interview with Tony Schiavone. They're going to have a tag team match moving forward, and Jamie Hayter is your number one contender. She's going to face Tony Storm for the women's championship. Tony Storm cut a promo talking about how her and Jamie lived together throughout the pandemic, they're friends, and then in AEW, Jamie just ignores her. So they're building Tony and Jamie. Uh, where else did we hit? We had a <clears throat> Chris Jericho, kind of an open challenge, calling out any Ring of Honor champion, and it was Colt Cabana who makes his way out. Cole Cabana had not been on TV recently, and apparently that was because of CM Punk. But with no CM Punk around, this was kind of a a way to stick to CM Punk, to have Cole on here in a pretty good match. And they, they set this up well. Jericho gets the win. The Atlantic champion, All-Atlantic Championship, Orange Cassidy versus Luchasaurus versus Ray Phoenix. Orange Cassidy picks up the win there. And then after it, Shibata enters. And Shibata and Orange Cassidy on Rampage for the All-Atlantic Championship. Swerve Strickland was backstage with Rick Ross. Yes, Rick Ross was on AEW in a backstage segment. And Rick Ross was great. I'm critiquing a lot of this stuff. He was fantastic. He really fits in the wrestling world. He just sort of kind of gets the energy to have. I thought it was good. We had a quick TBS championship match with Jade Cargill versus Marina Shafir. Jade gets the win, but basically throughout this match, you had Vicky Guerrero and Nyla Rose out there, and Nyla Rose stole the TBS title from Jade, and she was just talking trash. It was a squash. We had the Ring of Honor TV title match. Samoa Joe versus Brian Cage. Samoa Joe picks up the win. Before that, there was a video that aired about the House of Black, Malachi Black, Brody King, and Buddy Matthews. An eerie video, and they should be making their return in the next few weeks. We had that Ring of Honor championship, TV championship match with Samoa Joe getting the win, and following that, Joe was attacked. That's just, there's always so many things going on. We can't just have a match clean, kind of let it breathe a little bit. There's, there's just, I think it was John Pollock 
from post wrestling that said this felt like a Vince Russo edition of a TV show in that it's nice when everyone has something going on, but when it's just one thing after the next, after the next, after the next, you end a show and, and you stop and think like what even really happened? Because when so much happens, it doesn't feel like anything important happens. I didn't really love this particular episode. It felt like they were throwing a lot of things at the wall. We didn't get MJF here. Haven't really been a big fan of the way they've been building to pay-per-views now. It's This is going to sneak up again where we're not going to have all this, this great build to a lot of these matches. So Chad Cooper will be back with us next week to talk about everything going on in the world of wrestling. Let's finish up this episode with the old wrestling rewatch. Andrew Champagne joins me to talk about a very infamous night in the world of wrestling. A uh, a show that people will all talk about for some of the wrong reasons. Uh, it's the Halloween Havoc with the Chamber of Horrors, 1991. Oh, one of these things that looked good on paper. Cage, we'll have another cage inside of it. All these guys going at it. We'll have to put them in what looks like an electric chair. Just the more you try to do, the more difficult it becomes. I thought this was a pretty fun show, though. Um, There are a couple hidden gems on the card. And I, I was a fan of the main event. Andrew Champagne joins me to talk Halloween Havoc 1991 in the deep dive. The match by match recap and review. We are recording this old wrestling rewatch a few days before Halloween, and we are talking about Halloween Havoc 1991 WCW and the Chamber of Horrors match. We'll go through the entire pay-per-view as always, match by match. This week, it's myself and Andrew Champagne who joins. Andrew, this was your pick. It was one of those you have to attack at some point. You're definitely going to get to it at some point. And they start right out with the Chamber of Horrors match. That's the opening match on the card. The rest of the show, it it's not very good, honestly, overall. Uh, there are, I think, three kind of high spots throughout the night that I could you could really pinpoint. Maybe one or two other spots where I was expecting more and we didn't quite get it. But um, I will say, all that being said, I actually think that the Chamber of Horrors match is less negative than most people make it out to be right now. We'll dive into that in just a minute. But Andrew Champagne, this was your pick. This was your selection. Talk to us about the Chamber of Horrors in WCW Halloween Havoc 1991. So I want to clarify something before we go any further. I agree with you, but we are not saying that the Chamber of Horrors was not bad. It was bad. It was very bad. It's just not the worst thing we have ever seen or the worst thing that we have talked about on this show. If you go into this with the mindset of it's 3 a.m., you can't sleep, you're flipping around the channels, and you see an Ed Wood movie on the Sci-Fi channel, go in with that attitude and you will laugh your face off. It's... uh. It's a start to a show, that's for sure. There are a bunch of cool little Easter eggs that we'll talk about on this program. There is what I think is quietly a very good main event between oh, I think it's excellent. and Ron Simmons. I, I completely um, agree. I think it's really good. Yeah. yeah. And we also get the WCW debut of the Halloween Phantom, who we'll talk a little bit more about as it goes on. 
There was awesome. are some high spots on this show. That was really well done. There's just so much stuff on this show. Even if you take the Chamber of Horrors match out, that has no business being on a pay-per-view. And TV we're going to go, we're going to go in depth. It, honestly, Gino, some of this isn't even TV stuff material. This is I know. the kind of stuff you put on a dark match where you need to get guys onto the show in some capacity, but you don't want the cameras on while it happens. This is uh, not one of the all-time great shows, but it's a show that we had to get to at some point. This was the right time of year to do it. Shout out to Darren Zocali, not with us tonight. He's taking care of much more important things right now, and that's all we'll go into on that. Darren, hope all is well, buddy. But this show, again, we needed to get there at some point. It's Halloween season, so uh, here we go, I guess. Here we go to Halloween Havoc, WCW 1991. So, we have a really good commentary team, though. I will say, JR and Tony Schiavone, I mean, these two guys were literally sitting on a commentary table together about a month ago. <laughs> right now, <laughs> uh, all these years later, doing AEW stuff. So they're both very well liked, too. And this was a great chance for JR to get to really call a lot of athletes, to get to talk about a lot of the background. In Alex Luger, Ron Simmons' main event, he was just geeking out, getting able to talk about all the real-life sporting accolades of those two. So we actually opened things up with an an intro video. It was Halloween Havoc, so these are some graphics that you might have seen. I think this was the first ever video game, Andrew, that we saw the graphics for here to start their video. My goodness, it's so, (laughs) so bad. For those that have not seen this before, it's wrestlers as ghosts moving around the screen as a camera goes through all these weird like graveyard settings and this haunted house and oh my god do you remember um i found these on netflix the other day and so i with it being halloween i've thrown them on in the background while i've been doing some work do you remember the goosebumps shows oh gosh yes and i remember the goosebumps books rl stein's a heck of a writer they were and they're on netflix they're fantastic and the the shows they would have little specials that came on and they would run them a lot of times right around Halloween and they would be just a, you know, a tele a televised version of the the books. And they were actually, I mean, now you look back at them, the, the production value is awful, but they're actually kind of spooky and they're kind of scary when you're a kid and you're into them, you know, and kind of reminds me of something like this when you're looking well, at it. Well, it's the like, same as the old Nickelodeon show. Are you afraid? Of absolutely. The dark, right. Absolutely. Which, spoiler alert. And you're going to judge the heck out of me for this. I never got into Are You Afraid of the Dark? You want to know? I I wasn't that. I mean, it was fine, but it wasn't something that I would go to myself or I wouldn't even have as much nostalgia about it right now. No, right. there are people that swore by Are You Afraid of the Dark when I was a kid. And I'm just going even admittedly in late elementary school years, like, why would you willingly scare yourself like that when it's not Halloween? I don't understand it. But yeah, I remember the Goosebumps stuff had a whole bunch of the Goosebumps books. Uh, yeah, that was uh, man. That's that's a franchise I hadn't heard about in a really long time. Because I'm a I like a lot of uh, leading into Halloween, you know. And then I'll do the same thing with Christmas. What's cool about the streaming services now is they all have so much stuff, and they they 
play into it They'll give you their Halloween collections of everything And they'll make it really easy for you to find stuff So I was going back and forth with my sister uh, I said, oh, Chanel, look, I found, uh, you know, on, on Paramount All the screams are on there, you know You can go one through four and then they have the new scream You can watch five And she said, no, that's too scary for me I said, okay, Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen's Double Double Toil and Trouble is on Hulu, Chanel That's more your speed Okay, there there we go. I'm so, not uh, gonna touch that one because your <laughs> sister could probably kick my ass. So I'll just I'll let you bear the brunt of that. Let's dive into the opening match. It is the chamber. Well, before we get there, can we Please talk do. about Eric Bischoff's interviews before oh, the yes! match? Here we so, go. You're right. Here's the thing: there are a number of costumes on this show. It's and Halloween. You can tell that people had some fun with them. My favorite costume the whole night. Abdullah the Butcher showing up to the arena in a tie. This like, was this was great. You hell? get to you get to watch everybody <laughs> arriving in you know early in the in the day. Cactus Jack, Abdullah, DDP, and Diamond Stud, Barry Windham, Dusty Rhodes. Bischoff is dressed like a vampire, and we see Zabisco and Windham. Uh, Zabisco and Arn attack Windham, and they break his hand. So then Dustin has to get in a car and drive him to the hospital. So we see all of this happening a few hours earlier just to give us a little background as to why Wyndham isn't wrestling today. It was kind of goofy, but I will say it's a little bit different. You know, they did this in this era of WCW a little bit where they would show people arriving and catch some of the the footage. It It's kind of weird to look at, but... I don't mind the swing. It's kind of a different approach. It's it's doing something a little bit different. It's just it's just sort of like most of the things they did at this time period. The the ideas aren't always wrong, but they just don't execute it all that well with the production right. value. They're not For like sh- yeah. the WWE, you know, or WWF at this point. Yeah, and this idea in general, like some of the most famous WCW Jim Crockett promotions angles from this time period were things like this. Dusty Rhodes getting his arm broken was one of these angles. You had stuff like this, and there are certain things that one Triple H, who grew up watching WCW by his own admission, has taken and used in the promotions that he's been running. Back when NXT was a thing, about the only unresolved storyline in NXT, we never got this, you remember when they found Hideo Itami attacked in the parking lot and they had mm-hmm. no idea who did it? Mm-hmm. it? It's that kind of angle. And yep. it's cool to do it every once in a while. I don't mind them taking the swing like this. And it does explain why one of their bigger stars at the time, Barry Windham, didn't have a match on the show. So of all of the objectionable things that are on this show, to me, this isn't one of them. I didn't mind the swing. Let's get into the Chamber of Horrors match. So the what makes the match a little bit difficult, right? And there's there are only a lot one of, thing. <laughs> yeah, like there are a lot of things that we're gonna laugh about when we talk about it. But if they just didn't have the lever to pull, and it was just all these guys having a brawl to go to a pinfall or a submission, like a war games match, it would have been fine. It wouldn't have been. As comical as it is now Because to be honest you have Dude there's a lot of talent in this ring Andrew for a match like this I mean it's not like they're throwing The bottom of the barrel of the card On here you have Sting World champion Face of the franchise you have The Steiner brothers one of the all time Greatest tag teams and a future World champion you have 
the diamond stud, Scott Hall, goes down as maybe the best wrestler or on the list of five with like Jake, Mr. Perfect, and a few others that weren't a world champion in WCW or in WWF at their times. You have Cactus Foley, who's one of the best of all time and loved at what he did. You have Vader, and both of them are world champs. But the they have a cage, and then they drop down another cage inside of it with an like a a torture chair that looks like an electric chair. So what ends up happening is first off, you've got a bunch of guys all at the same time, so it's sort of hard to keep track because there's literally like four separate matches happening all and over. then there becomes more people because at least one guy pops out of a casket for no reason and then there's a few ghouls that come down to the ring and they're just kind of standing outside the ring so they're trying to make the shot wider to give you a look at like everyone and then on top of it add into the fact that there's two layers of cage in front of you, what you're watching so you can't even really see through the, the cage and then another layer of cage as people are fighting around. But you still are going to get fully all bloodied up. You're still going to, e- even the way they introduced people in this match, Andrew, was bizarre. The way yeah. they, they introduced first El Gigante, then Vader, then Diamond all of Stud, the second team. Yeah. Cacti- well, not even all of them. Then Vader, Cactus, or Vader, Diamond Stud, Cactus Jack. Then they went. The Steiners, then they went back to Abdullah, and okay, they staved Singh for last. Totally get that if that's what they wanted to do. It was almost like they wanted to have their cake and eat it too because they wanted to have the first person out be a baby face and then the last person out be a baby face to kind of get the pop. But it was weird. It was just sort of weird to have them going back and forth because then you start like, okay, who's on which team again? You know, you start doing the math in your head for people that may not have been paying attention to the product or 100% following everything at the time. And we always say that wrestling is better when it's simpler, right? Like when it can be simple. And now all of a sudden, before the match has even started, you're wondering who's on which team. And they're not even like a normal tag match where they're standing on opposite sides. So these guys are just walking all over. You may There may be a lot of people here who didn't even know who was on which side. So here's the thing. And this is something that I've been waiting to talk about with this. They let off this show with this match somewhere in the arena in Chattanooga, Tennessee on this evening was someone that had never been to a wrestling show before, never seen wrestling on their television. <laughs> this is great. They had, You're right. Yeah. They had, you know, they'd gotten a ticket from somebody or one of their friends said, Hey, WCW's in town. You want to go? And they said, sure. Their first wrestling match that they had ever seen was the chamber of horrors match where the object of the match is to put someone in the chair of torture and per ring announcer, Gary Capetta pull a fatal lever. Uh, (laughs) And look, if you're out there, mommy, this is wrestling. Yes. And you're thinking, (laughs) Oh, this guy is clearly exaggerating everything. Watch the tape. That's exactly what gets said. They talk about people getting electrocuted here and you had all of these guys that were talented and or over. I mean, El Gigante gets a pop when he comes out. We like to bash El Gigante, Giant Gonzalez, whatever, for being probably the worst technical wrestler to ever get a sustained push. The guy was over, okay? You get him coming out. 
you get parts of the heel team coming out. Four Hall of Famers on this squad. Abdullah the Butcher, Diamond Stud, a.k.a. Razor Ramon, Cactus Jack, and Vader. Then you have the Steiner brothers and Sting. And somehow this match is the worst possible use of all of them. Because here's the thing. They're trying. And the first couple minutes, it's fun to watch. But then they drop the cage down. The second cage with the chair in it. And you wind up with the visual of guys having to climb the cage to have room to do things because there's no room in the ring or outside of the ring between the ring and the cage to actually do things and do wrestling spots. And when you have a wrestling match where people can't do wrestling spots, it's going to be pretty bad. Yeah, it's I mean, you can't even really describe it. It's just a crazy brawl all over. And we haven't and, even gotten to the finish yet, which I'm really excited about. <laughs> and it, it takes a few minutes to get everybody in the cage. Sting's using a kendo stick. There's caskets in the corner. There's a mask man that pops out in one of it. Vader and Sting are going at it. El Gigante and Diamond Stud are going at it. Then that you, as Andrew mentioned, the chair of torture drops into the ring from above. Is It's a small cage within a cage. Sting throws the coffin on top of... Co- Piece of the coffin on top of Cactus Jack's head Cactus is bleeding all over Abdullah's trying to climb out of the cage They're working Honestly the guys are working hard And so you kind of feel bad because you're watching It's like a lot of these guys are busting their butt And people aren't going to really appreciate What they're doing here You know this is like what Jericho Mentions with the elimination chamber sometimes Like you're taking these bumps And these that, that you don't like hear it They don't sound that great But they still hurt You know and that's that's what happens here. Um, we get the guys disguised, uh, disguised in white paint, fa- uh, white paint, and they have paint on their faces. They're being referred to as the ghouls, and they have a stretcher awaiting outside. It starts to get really slow towards the end of the twelve minutes that they're in there, and it looks like they've got Rick Steiner in the chair, but he turns around and he puts Abdullah in the chair. Now the problem is. While all this is happening, poor Mick Foley, he has to stand over by the lever and wait. And he has to pretend that he doesn't see all of this happening. That he just thinks Abdullah still has put Rick Steiner in the chair. But everybody's screaming. It's taken at least 20 seconds while Mick's just standing there. And Rick has had to put Abdullah in there, put the... The top on his head Put the the wrist straps in In order to keep him in there So by the time Mick pulls the lever I mean it's obvious that It's no longer Rick Steiner in there Then after he pulls the lever It looks like What happened in the AEW uh, (laughs) The death match they had with with Omega and with Moxley When the pyro was just out You see some pyro and some smoke But little Things of fire shoot out And then the, the ring is on fire It didn't look good visually Aesthetically And then, I mean, are we we're really supposed to just be Playing this off like they're trying to kill this guy In an electric chair Like the announcers are just like Man, he's been fried up And they're just laughing about how we've just cooked this man alive To start the pay-per-view I don't so know my, my favorite part is actually what happens After that happens so after that happens, 
Poor Mick Foley, who, you know, just was sent out there to die in this match and not die physically, die from an overdose standpoint and being made to look like the dumbest bad guy in the history of bad guys. He goes in and he tries to revive Abdullah the Butcher. Abdullah wakes up, knocks the crap out of Cactus Jack, and then all of a sudden you notice six to eight orderlies with white coats and about the thinnest stretcher that I think you could ever imagine. Because this little thing that's probably, oh, two feet wide by maybe five feet long is going to hold Abdullah the freaking Butcher. Butcher comes out, pastes all of the orderlies, all of the orderlies take bumps, and all of a sudden he and Cactus Jack are okay and they walk out arm in arm. What did we just watch? That was my reaction. Now, as we've said, it's bad. It is very bad. I have this at minus three stars. It is not the worst thing I have ever seen because at least it was so bad it was funny. There were times where wrestling companies have tried to do so bad it's funny and failed miserably. The one that I referenced in one of our pre-show meetings happened about a year and a half ago when WWE accepted a wheelbarrow full of money to promote Army of the Dead by having the Miz get eaten by zombies on a Sunday night and show up on Monday like nothing happened. That, I think, was worse than this. Because this, you could at least go into, again, bad science fiction, bad horror movie mindset, and just laugh at the absurdity of everything once you know what's going on. It's something that you need to see at least once, and it's probably best to go into it with the mindset that I just laid out. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's it's awful, but you do sort of feel bad for the talent that's in the ring because it's like, man, McFoley's bleeding. You know, you got like all these guys are busted open. They're trying. They're not realizing that we can't see what they're doing. Nobody can really make sense of it. And you know, you go in and, and a lot of times things look okay on paper, right? Oh, this kind of looks cool. A cage, and then there's another cage, and there's going to be a chair in here, and we're going to have all the crazy ones. It just, it didn't work. I'm glad we got to talk about it here, at least, because, yeah, the the camera that they were working with all night, the reefer eye, that's what they're calling it, the referee camera. The referee, yeah. It's just, and, and they obviously hadn't done a whole lot with this thing, so you're not really getting very many great shots throughout. Yeah, you know, this was this was brutal. so. If in defense of the referee, at least in the context of this match, one of the things that I often don't like about cage matches is a lot of times the cameras are outside the cage, and the cage just, in in a sense, turns every seat into an obstructed view seat. And there are times where it's tough to broadcast a match like that especially with everything that was going on. They had to try something, and I don't think it worked terribly in this match, but they brought it back for Pillman and Ricky Morton, and it worked terribly there. You could tell it was something that they were still working out the kinks with, and of course, Nick Patrick was never in the right spot with the referee cam because he's a referee and not a cameraman. Don't make people do things they don't know how to do. You just put him in a spot to fail This is the opposite of Paul Heyman 
who we would see on the card a little bit yep. later on tonight, cutting an awesome promo. We then move on to just a, a backstage segment where the Young Pistols basically turn heels. Here. Well, can we first talk about Eric Bischoff's Dracula impression? Yes, Eric Bischoff's Dracula. Missy is like a showgirl. Missy Hyatt. Yeah, I think that I got to tell you, that was not the biggest leap for Missy Hyatt in the world. <laughs> I was going to say, I didn't really. Yeah, yeah. And in uh, their backstage, they want to know who the Phantom is. But yeah, Bischoff was. Uh, it's really funny to see, like you know, Bischoff and Heyman together in there. They were, you know, bought, they were partners on the uh, the broadcast for a little while too, and guys that were in charge for a while. And here's Bischoff popping up, uh, dressed like a vampire, and I mean. He was so generic in this role. He didn't bring much to the table. Like a JR and a Tony kind of had a unique like Eric Bischoff as an announcer at this point, as a reporter, he was just random reporter guy. Yeah, he was not even a backstage executive at this point. He had just come in from the AWA, which had just closed down, I believe, either earlier this year or the year before. He was still very fresh-faced. He was not an executive producer at that point. There was no competition with the WWF at that point. This is Bischoff in his early years, the years where he was just doing backstage stuff, doing random interviews, and uh, I have to imagine that he would very much prefer this particular uh, video on this particular evening not exist, but there it is on the WWE Network in perpetuity. I mean, and... It's not really much. It's just the Young Pistols kind of having a heel turn on this this pay per view. They call out the like the Patriots, the, the US, Patriots, yes, yeah, who are the current talk a US. A little bit more about them later. Who are the current U.S. Tag Team Champions, and they say they want to they want to match with them coming up. So just a basic little promo from a team that's actually not even on the card throughout the night. As we get ready for our second match, it's the Creatures. This was Joey Mags and Johnny Rich, but they were introduced from parts unknown, weight unknown, and they were going up against PN News and Big Josh. Big Josh was Matt Bourne, the the man who would be Doink the Clown in just about a year from from here. And Matt, PN News was the rap master, so you know he's rapping on the way to the ring. He kind of looks like Top Dolla right now, from <laughs> if you're thinking about a uh, WWE at this time. The best part is, is that there was a fan ringside who won a rap contest for, you know, writing a rap that got voted as like the best rap. And so right after that, Tony says, and that was a darn good rap too, JR, which is just <laughs> exactly how you would think about someone describing rap, right? It was darn good. It was darn good too. Just, I, it's, it, I believe, <laughs> which one of Edge and Christian was it that said for shizzle on an episode yes. of, uh, of Raw in the late 90s? It was that. And you get, you get PN News, 400 pound PN News, trying to rap, and he's trying to be like the inoffensive babyface version of a rapper. And it goes as you would expect, complete with ending with his catchphrase, which is, ahem. Yo, baby, yo, baby, yo. And then turning that into a chant. 1991 WCW, folks. So, I mean, the match is just such basic tag stuff here. Big Josh, Big Josh with a belly to belly, some chops. I mean, he's actually 
like Matt Bourne's a good wrestler. He's a oh, good he hand. Was, he was good. Yeah. And you could tell that they were they were liking him here because the announcers were starting to get behind him. They kept mentioning how much Big Josh has improved and how much Big Josh is getting better and better. And I mean, it's it's really nothing, uh, honestly. We get Big Josh with like a a sit, and then he tags in Big uh, PN News for a splash, and and that's it. This goes about five minutes, but there are three other matches on the card that are. Basically squashes and this one is the same thing It's just a slightly longer tag team squash With these two guys to get the baby faces on And that's that's what's in I think in eventually the problem about this show Way more than just the Chamber of Horrors Because I, you and I were just talking about it earlier WWE has swung and missed on things like that How many times, right? I mean, WCW swung and missed on things with the Yeti and with RoboCop and all these different things through the years, WWE has had zombies. Hell, we just all decided to buy into The Undertaker. You know what I mean? Like, we all just bought into that. If we decided to not and turn on that one, we could have any moment turned on The Undertaker stuff. Um, can, can we bring up Kane's uh, life story that he told yes. at group therapy with Dr. Shelby? <laughs> Please. Yeah, no, it's, there are certain things that people buy into and not whatever, uh, this, the crowd is just dead for this, first of all, because they have to follow the atrocity that is chamber of horrors and the crowd is just spent, but good old JR ever the trooper ever the loyal foot soldier tries to describe the atmosphere as almost a collegiate atmosphere, trying to compare it to like a college football stadium. No, JR just no. This was a five-minute match. PN News gets the splash off the top for the pin. Big Josh did get a really nice belly-to-back, which I very much enjoyed. But I I don't know why this match was on the show. I have no idea why. No. It just is. This was, you know, we're at the point now where there's not Monday Nitro yet. This is WCW Saturday night or, like, Saturday morning, like you said. this This isn't even, you know... Like a Nitro something that would have made it to your your top TV show or to Monday Night Raw in a year. This was, yeah, this was uh, just five minutes or so that didn't do much. But I will say, it was funny to see Big Josh out there, Matt Bourne, who we would see not too long as Dink, as a uh, Doink the Clown. Next up, it's our third match on the card. Don't really get anything in between these matches. Just Jr. talking about how. Beautiful Bobby Eaton is currently the number seven ranked wrestler. Started talking a lot about the rankings and that Bobby Eaton hopes to challenge for the TV championship if he can win this match with Terrence Taylor. This was like my pleasant surprise on the card. It's a good match. This match is very good. And you know what? Terrence Taylor, like Terry Taylor gets, I think he gets a little bit more of a bad rap about his in-ring work. His in-ring work is fine. No, his he just didn't, ring work is good. It's just he got saddled with the red rooster gimmick and that killed him. And he and he never even in his some of his other gimmicks, like this one, you can see what they're going for with this gimmick. He's called the computerized man of the 1990s. And it's actually it it kind of makes sense if you think about it. He has a person ringside. This is in 1991. He has a person ringside that's sitting there with him that's has the has a computer that's doing a readout of his match that's giving him 
advice on what to do. This is analytics, Andrew. This yep. is advanced and can, metrics years and can before. We talk, and can we talk about who that person is? Yes, it's Miss yeah. Alexandra York and who played Miss Alexandra York. The artist otherwise known as Marlena, a.k.a. Terry Runnels. It's really cool to see her at this point. Now, the York Foundation stable went absolutely nowhere. It was a collection of mid-carters, and it was just a way to give people something to do. But Terry Taylor was a darn good hand, and every time he pops up as Terry Taylor, not the Red Rooster, we're not even going to worry about that, but he's a solid, dependable guy. Bobby Eaton. Solid, dependable guy, better known as being part of the Midnight Express, but he had some very good singles matches, and I don't know how very good this match was, but it's really solid stuff, and if you put it on a Raw or a Dynamite or whatever now, it would fit. I have this as a three-star match, Gino. I thought it was pretty good. We, yeah, I I completely agree, Andrew. The, The shape that Terry Taylor in is in at this point is fantastic. It's a little bit leaner than normal. It's not like he was ever a thick guy or anything, but he's like a little leaner. And so you can really see like his muscle definition. And Terry Reynolds has her computer out there. And the work is really good. This match goes 16 minutes. We get some arm drags and some really good in-ring work by Terry Taylor early. It's a little slow feeling out process. Taylor's um, Taylor gets tossed into the crowd and then Bobby Eaton's in control. They battle out in the aisle way. You get a big knee by Bobby off the top rope into the aisle on Terry Taylor. And then Taylor tosses Bobby outside and then drives Eaton from the ring apron with a bump that sends him into the barricade, which was really cool. It was a a big bump. Uh, Taylor's in control for a while. He hits a nice gut wrench powerbomb on the ramp, and he's playing the real heel role while Bobby is the baby face that everybody loves. It's just a great, the the two of them at this time with the characters they're playing was, they were a great compliment of each other. Terry Taylor actually hits a splash off the top and he's working on the back and the neck of Eaton. Bobby try, uh, finally able to fight back with some right hands, but every time he seems like he has a, a comeback spot, he gets a little bit farther, a little bit farther. And then Taylor has that move to sort of, Get back in control And he's playing to the crowd He goes for a Vader bomb But he takes a little bit too long That's the opening that Bobby needs With a a big suplex, a neck breaker Then he hits the Alabama jam The big leg drop off the top rope I thought this was a good match And I wasn't expecting it to be Maybe the match I That exceeded my expectations Most just looking at the card And not remembering all these matches This one is really good It's 16 minutes and it's one of the the better matches on the show, Andrew. I, I just re- a lot of positives to say about this uh, coming out of it. I thought it was a, a really good job between two guys who were solid middle of the card guys at the time. Now, if you're Bobby Eaton and Terry Taylor at this point, and you have seen what has gone on in the first two matches, is your mindset okay? We don't have to do a ton to surpass those, or is it? Okay, we'd better give this crowd something because those first two <laughs> matches were god awful. It felt like that was it, right? It felt like they were like, let's at least make them think about us and not what they just came in and watched to start the show. Good stuff. I mean, I th- I thought this was like three and a half ish. 
Honestly, yeah, I, I mean, I've I, got it as a solid three. And honestly, I probably undermarked it a little bit just because it was 1991 it, and the standard for ring work was a little bit lower unless your last name was Hart, Steamboat or Flair. But and I might have over and like I said, I might have over given it a little bit more just because what we were coming off of the first two matches on the card aren't great. And I just really wasn't expecting all that much out of it, but really solid stuff from these guys from uh, from about 16 minutes or so. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they they have that spot where they fight into the crowd and they take some nice bumps around the guardrail. And at that point, you're going, oh, wow, two guys that can actually work. How refreshing. And really, if you're unfamiliar with Bobby Eaton's single stuff, go out of your way and watch it. The guy was just such a solid all-around worker that never took a night off. Next up, it's Johnny B. Bad with Teddy Long against Jimmy Garvin with Michael Hayes. So... Michael Hayes was selling an injury, so he couldn't wrestle in this match. We find out that he actually was not injured, and he just had his arm in a sling. Johnny B. Bad, the number eight ranked wrestler in WCW. Man, what a look he had here, huh? He, it's like he's going for the flare robe thing, but he has makeup on. He has a purple sequined robe, makeup all over. The guy's in phenomenal shape right now. I mean, he's cut up as can be, Johnny B. Bad. And we have Michael P.S. Hayes and Jimmy Jam Garvin. They're rocking the Atlanta Braves hats and jackets. They're doing the tomahawk chant all over. So they're the baby faces here. And they're free, big Freebirds chants all over the place. I mean, Jimmy Jam Garvin is a, he's a veteran. He's a pro at this point. He's not going to give you bad in-ring work. There just wasn't like a flow to much of this match. And at this point of the match now, there were three times in the evening where there were just these awful, absurd references to the DQ rule that WCW had at the time, Andrew, which there was a disqualification rule if you threw your opponent over the top rope in the middle of a match. But we find out that it's discretionary. It's up to the referee's judgment. But what ends up happening in this match, Garvin just throws Johnny B. Bad over the top rope early on in the match. And you know the match isn't ready to be done yet because it's only two minutes in. So the announcers have to pretend like, oh, uh, the ref just uh, the ref isn't going to call the match here. He decided he wasn't going to disqualify him. The same thing happens in a match later on. But then in the main event for the title, in a two out of three falls match, one of the falls is because Ron Simmons throws Luger over, which was bizarre. There was just no consistency to it at all. So it ends up, it hurts when you kind of take the night as a whole because I I was hurting my brain to think about it. Yeah, that rule you don't want to think about, but it would rear its head a couple of times during the course of the evening. You mentioned the Freebirds coming out in Braves gear doing the chop. They were in the World Series at the time, And Halloween Havoc 1991 competed with one of the greatest World Series games of all time, Game 7 of that year's World Series, where Jack Morris and John Smoltz had that pitching duel for the ages of Minnesota, won one to nothing. Uh, That was a pretty cool little trip, and really, the the Jack Morris-John Smoltz stories, they never get old. That's such a great game to go back and just dissect from a pitching standpoint. Uh, You mentioned Johnny B. Bad's look. They're clearly trying to go for the little Richard kind of thing here, but it's almost like 
they're not sure yet whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. They know the Freebirds are probably going to get cheered because, hey, it's the Southeast. The Freebirds are over. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. The match itself is not bad. Uh, Johnny B. Bad takes a couple of really big bumps to the floor, including on one of those chucks over the top rope. The thing that made me laugh during the course of the match, WCW is talking up the DDT as a killer finishing move, and they're acting like the Freebirds invented the DDT. Um, guys, there's this guy with a snake on line one who drew a whole mess of money working for <laughs> the promotion know. that, whether we want to admit it or not, came off a lot more like the big leagues at this point than you guys did. Um, I, I think he wants a word as to what may have happened to get the DDT over. This match, though, I don't understand the booking of the finish because you get Johnny B. Bad getting the right hand after Garvin gets a DDT with no ref present. Garvin's foot's on the ropes. Long pushes it off. Ref makes the count. Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Who's going over? Who looks good coming out of this match? If you're going to do the sort of finish like that, do a DQ finish and keep things rolling. Like there are more ways in which each guy could benefit from that than from what happened here. Because now Garvin looks like a loser because he got beat. Johnny B. Bad looks like a loser, even though he won the match. And the Freebirds, who are the baby faces here and who are going to be heels most everywhere else, don't look good either. It's befuddling and it ruins what's a pretty decent match. They try. Uh, I mean, and and also Michael Hayes is just downright hysterical acting as though anyone believes his arm is actually hurt. It's pretty funny to the the point where five minutes into the match, he's taking his arm out of the sling to bang both arms against the ring apron. That's pretty funny. funny. When Michael Hayes is in his element, he's hysterical. He is. He was a performer, you know, and you know, you're, you're getting, the crowd was into this at the beginning and they're into the, the free birds. They're into the brave stuff, you know, and Johnny, he's showing his strength, his athleticism, some big punches, some big strikes. Uh, Johnny uses a towel to choke Garvin at one point. Then there's this awful botch where he tries the sunset flip spot off the top rope, but he's like three quarters of the way across the ring. He's way too far across the ring. and it, it doesn't work. Now it doesn't, it's not the finishing spot, but it's towards the end. And then Johnny ends up going up to the top or Johnny ends up going to the outside. Garvin hits a DDT, but Teddy long distracts the referee and Johnny B bads able to recover with, it's kind of a punch out of nowhere for a three count. And then even the finish, uh, Garvin's foot is on the rope during the pin. Teddy long goes to push it off. But the problem, Andrew was the way that they were set up in the ring. The referee, where he was counting the three, he was right next to the ropes, and Garvin's foot was literally on top of him. He was, like, underneath it. So there would have been no way that he couldn't have seen Teddy Long push the foot off the rope. I mean, it was on. he would have felt it. The, the leg was, like, draping over him. It's, it was one of those things that, that didn't work out well where they were spotted in the ring, and I don't know what's the referee supposed to do at that point, but... There were three or four things in this match that just really hurt it trying to get into any kind of a flow or a rhythm. You know, it just couldn't, I just couldn't get out of first gear because of those things. Yeah. I mean, 
Again, it's not a bad match. Jimmy Garvin has his working boots on. Johnny B. Bad has his working boots on. They're strong performers. You give them some time, they're going to do fun things. But there was just a lot of things that were out of sync and out of sorts about this match. And it makes for a decent historical curiosity. But other than that, and other than hearing good old JR calling Teddy Long peanut head a couple of times, it's just another okay match with a bizarre finish that doesn't really help anybody. Now, as uh, we continue along, and Missy Hyatt, is backstage. She's trying to find the WCW Halloween Phantom. Bobby Eaton walks by with a pumpkin. He says, I'm off to celebrate. It was funny. He had the pumpkin like it was a beer. Like he was about to go pop up with his pumpkin and celebrate. I was like, you're going to make some seeds, man? I love me some pumpkin seeds. Pumpkin pie, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it, was, it was just like, okay. He really didn't say much. It wasn't much at all. The next match... Starts with JR asking or JR telling us that if he was starting a franchise and he had a draft pick, he would use it on stunning Steve Austin. And JR has a lot of quotes like that through the years about Steve. And you can just tell how high he was on him always. He says, you know, this guy has only been around for about a year. You, he's always wrestling on TV. He's excellent in ring. And man, it's so fun to see these two guys at this point because we watched Austin and Dustin Rhodes a couple years after this have some solid matches. But this is fun. This is a 15-minute match for the TV championship. And the way they set it up, you feel like there's no way Dustin is going to lose this match. They have a, a video for him. They show you know his grandma in the crowd and... It felt like this was going to be the moment for him, but that was not the case. That was not the, the the case. These guys go at a really nice clip early, and I mean, two wrestlers that Goldust Dustin has not won a world champion, but he's in that conversation. We were talking about Scott Hall as some of the best ever not to win it. Steve Austin, one of the all time greats, if not the all time great, is there's another moment where there's a judgment call not to DQ. Uh, when Dustin clotheslines Austin over the top rope And Austin sells so good Bumping around all over the place He's got some like Shawn Michaels selling in him Here early on when he was still in Physically in really really good shape And then Blossom Lady Blossom Is Steve Austin's valet at the time She actually gets involved Slaps Dustin a few times They start to slow things down a little bit at around the five minute mark or so And keep in mind because this is a TV championship match There's a 15 minute time limit So they give us the five minute check-ins Every now and then Dustin goes for a cross body Austin ducks And then this spot looked nasty Dustin goes bouncing Kind of flips like flops outside And that was when um, Austin's able to get in control Outside He Bust Dustin open There's a cut above his eye and Austin's really working on it And now Dustin is just bleeding All over the place They let us know there's about five minutes left And and just three minutes left When Austin misses a move And now Dustin's back in control Like usually happens in these matches For the last couple minutes And now it's Dustin battling against the clock With two minutes left we get a power slam Then a snapmare um, he gets the 10 punches He goes into the big elbow Then a clothesline And he's trying to, to get a pin in Just as time runs out So it's a time limit draw 
Austin retains the WCW television title It's a good match, Andrew I mean, I think this is a three-star mat Plus match from these guys And it's always, you know I don't think you can have matches be A five-star match when you don't have a real Definitive ending But I actually think that WCW was able to use the time limit draws to a, a, a really in really good ways a lot of the time like this this is a way to not make Dustin look weak you're not ready for Austin to lose quite yet this is a different result to a match you don't want to do this all the time but this is reality in sports like this if there there are ties sometimes in games that have time limits you know so I actually don't mind this overall and these two guys work really, really hard. Can you believe it? They're two all-time greats. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Jeannie Clark, a.k.a. Lady Blossom. Jeannie Clark's biggest contribution to the industry had nothing to do with her time in WCW. When Steve Austin signed with WWF in the mid-1990s, they gave him a gimmick where they called him the ringmaster. And he was floundering, and they had no idea what to do with him even though everyone knew there was this fantastic worker just waiting to come out. Jeannie Clark makes tea at home. She serves the tea. She and Steve get preoccupied doing something else. And Jeannie Clark goes, oh, you'd better drink your tea before it gets stone cold. Mm -hmm. Ding! He goes, that's it. That sets everything in motion. That's the name. Austin winds up making millions of dollars. Winds up divorcing Jeannie Clark and marrying and divorcing Deborah and marrying the woman that he's with now. Life is a very strange thing. But that's the biggest contribution that the woman <laughs> known as Lady Blossom <laughs> makes here. Um, now, as far as this match goes, a lot of mat work early, a lot of counters. The tempo is really good. You can tell these guys knew, okay, we've got 15 minutes and we want to minimize the rest holds that we have here. Let's keep the tempo going. Uh, Dustin starts bouncing out of the ring in a really cool spot, maybe about two thirds of the way through the match. And then he blades on the floor and you can see like the Ric Flair kind of blading where like his, his hair starts turning red. It was initially blonde. It was a good blade job. Austin winds up bleeding as well. Dustin goes on a rally and just ultimately runs out of time. It's a decent story. It's a good match. I've got it at three and a quarter. The Mm -hmm. lack of a conclusive finish in a lot of instances, it makes sense a certain amount of the time. WCW and NWA before that did lean on it a lot. I mean, when the NWA champion was going from territory to territory, the way he would build up guys in the territory was work 60-minute time mm-hmm. limit draws. Yep. And time limit draws are absolutely fine in moderation. But like a lot of things with WCW, between that and dusty finishes, we'd see one of those in the main event to an extent as well. They overused them. Now, for the TV title, time limit draws make sense. You have TV time remaining. It's just what it is. But at the same time, it's being defended on a pay-per-view, not on a TV show. Again, don't think too much. Otherwise, your brain will turn to mush. It's a good match if you haven't seen it. And uh, if you were to tell me that both of these guys would have really good matches 31 years later, I I don't know what I'd tell you. But you're right. They did. And just this year, as uh, we continue along. And 
Up next, we have a Starcade hype video with the Battle Bowl, which was not a another one. It's like not you don't do those kind of things on your your flagship pay per view show, the big show of the year. You can try those gimmicky things at some of the in between pay per views, but you don't want to do that at a WrestleMania, at a Starcade, at the big big show. Uh, up next, we have Oz versus Bill Kazmaier. And this is so weird If you hear, hear Oz and you don't know who Oz is This is Kevin Nash This is Diesel And this is at the end of his push of Oz Because at the beginning when he came out He had a lot more pomp and circumstance to it It was a goofy gimmick Goofy as hell But you could at least tell that they were Trying with a few things with him With the costume and with the look This was just Big guy walking out into the ring And it's funny, Andrew, because every wrestler, Hulk Hogan, Stone Cold, the greats that we're talking about, Ric Flair, everyone starts out as an enhancement talent. That's just the way it goes. Everyone. But you don't see it as much with the big guys, you know, because the big guys are usually the guys that come in and squash the real enhancement talent and the jobbers, even when they're they're green, because the big guys are guys that you don't normally have just getting beat. It's weird to see Oz basically jobbing. To Kaz in here, Bill Kazmaier was a world's strongest man competitor who you could tell that WCW had some plans for. The commentary team was building him up. And then on the flip side, they were talking about how green Nash was repeatedly and how, you know, he's still figuring it out. He's still and learning. not just because he's Oz and was wearing green. <laughs> well done. Just You're right. green in general. Just yeah. green. Thank in general. you, everybody. Nicely Thank done, you. Andrew. Da-dun-sh. And so. What's hard about this is like you know you put Nash in a spot where is he the best opponent for someone like Kaz? I know what they're trying to do. They think okay, Kaz is a big strong man. He can pick Oz up. That will look very impressive. It probably would have been better for him to have a smaller guy who could bump a little bit better in here. Someone like the Z Man, even who you have come out later on, you know, or situations like that where it. I just these two guys at this point in their career shouldn't have been having a match like this because it it doesn't do anyone any good. Kaz ends up winning with a torture rack. I mean Nash is having to bump. They have a test of strength here. And okay, JR, point of order. Point of order. Please. Bill Kazmaier is billed as one of the world's strongest men. Why would you want a test of strength with a strong man? Just why? I know. I know. I know. Who ends up you know, Nash at the beginning has the advantage And then Kaz ends up winning that Don't forget, he comes to the ring with a big blown up g- globe That he's carrying <laughs> over the top of his head I mean, Nash does have a hit a back suplex uh, And then Kaz skins the cat That was actually pretty impressive for a guy like that Who showed some athleticism Hits a clothesline And then a torture rack I mean, this was this was four minutes. It was an absolute squash. And it just did not feel like something that was, again, on a pay-per-view. It's very weird in this place. Yeah. Um, again, it's one of those. And this is the first of back-to-back matches that had no business being on this show. No. And, and JR and... knows it, by the way. JR, at the end you could of hear the it. match, when Kazmaier gets the torture rack, goes, it wasn't pretty, but it was effective. Yeah, And that's at the point where you're like, wait, you want to push Bill freaking Kazmaier? Really? 
You've really? Got a lot of like, and and the problem that I had with this is that at this time period, you've got a lot of these like old veteran guys. I mean, you've got the Freebirds that we just used, just people like that who are veterans, who have been through the territories, who are good in ring, who can help get a guy over. Why not use one of these guys in this spot here to help get Kazmaier over a little bit more? I, I just, like, use someone who's been a veteran for a little longer, who has maybe a little bit more name recognition, and who's going to be a lot better in the ring. I just, I didn't like this pairing at all. And then what you were just pointing out, Andrew, they put it back-to-back with another squash match. That doesn't really make any sense. JR and Shivani are talking about Van Hammer and his look and how he's a rock star. We have Van Hammer versus Doug Summers. This match goes one minute. Doug Summers did not get any offense in. Doug Summers was 40 years old at the time. He honestly looks like he's 65 years old in this match. And... You have Van Hammer, heavy metal Van Hammer, come to the ring with his guitar. He obviously has no idea how to play a guitar. <laughs> you can tell. He's got a look that is Tom McGee, right? He looks like Tom McGee. He, he's big. He's got the long hair, and he's super tanned. It just, the guy is awful in ring. Awful. I mean, basic stuff he can't do. Uh, we have a slingshot. or He has a couple leg drops. And then he does a suplex where he holds the guy up and it's a slingshot suplex where he bounces him off the top rope and then suplexes him. But his timing is so off, he almost breaks poor Doug Summers' neck here in a minute and 13. He rocks out with the crowd, but he picks up a win. It just didn't feel like either of these matches are matches that should be on a pay-per-view along with the Big Josh and PN News match. So now all of a sudden... Seven matches through, you have three matches that just don't feel like they have any business being on a pay-for show. So Van Hammer comes out, and he's got the guitar, he's got the look, and you know he's got the look, because when he takes his shirt off, the collective squeal of the women in the building is loud enough to where the announcers cannot ignore it. No, the crowd, they're into him. I will say the crowd's into him. That's the reason he gets signed. And then the bell rings. And then we get some JR-isms where he goes out of his way to call Van Hammer a raw rookie. And he ain't talking about the show on WWF that hadn't debuted yet. Oh, man. And, And poor Doug Summers. Look, really quick. If any of you out there haven't watched the AWA series of matches that... Doug Summers and Buddy Rose had with the Midnight Rockers. Do yourself a favor and go watch them. It's a clinic in tag team wrestling. Their matches from the mid to late 1980s, and they still hold up. This match was awful as it happened. Three decades later, it still sucks. Just, you get where they're trying to go. You get they're trying to put some steam on Van Hammer. But what was this guy doing on TV at this point? I know he's just this is like you said this is dark matches this guy's not ready for TV he's not you you, you cannot I understand that he has a look and you want to get him out there and you want to rush him out there but you just can't do it because this was one split second away from somebody getting seriously hurt in in this match like it was it was close and yeah it 
It just didn't connect with old Van Hammer Match went 1 minute and 13 seconds As we get set up for the finals For the inaugural WCW Light Heavyweight Championship So I'm thinking on paper Flying Brian versus Richard Morton 12 minutes plus This thing's gonna be awesome Dude, this match disappointed me the most of anyone, any on the entire show. I got it say, was awful. It was terrible. It, it's so disappointing. I mean, I I thought this was going to jump off the page. And in reading a whole lot about the time period, this was a hundred percent on Richard Morton and the character at this time. He he didn't connect. I don't know what he was going for, and nobody watching at the time did either. They didn't understand if he thought that he was playing a better heel by wrestling this way, but it it wasn't even like good ring psychology because every time Brian had this comeback, it would get like immediately cut off. It, it, there was no flow. It was slow, slow pace for two of the bigger high flyers on the entire card. This is supposed to be the light heavyweight championship division where you're supposed to have high flying. It's supposed to be different than the main event because these guys can do things that the other bigger guys can't do. This match was so disappointing for almost 13 minutes too. I mean, there are a couple cool athletic spots, sure, but I mean the crowd... Is not into it because it starts to drag And even at the end, Andrew the Like normally I try to go move by move Through a lot of matches, especially a match like this But it's just, there's not much to it Even at the very end, the finish just kind of comes out of nowhere With the cross body And there's no real build up to the finish To get the crowd behind Pillman To crown a first ever new champ I, man I gotta say, this was really disappointing. I was expecting so much more from this match, and it to me, this came off like a, a total dud. Total dud is an understatement. You look at Brian Pillman. We have seen multiple tremendous Brian Pillman matches. You look at Ricky Morton. The guy is, if you want to say the best tag team wrestler of his era, I will not argue with you. Nobody got heat. Like Ricky Morton and the psychology, the, in yeah. the guy was a genius, and he also had a number of very good singles matches with Ric Flair that Flair regards as some of the best matches he ever had. I personally didn't quite get it with him as a singles guy, but fundamentally, the matches are exceptionally good. You put those two together, and you're thinking, okay, Ricky Morton's no kid, but this should still be a lot of fun. It just seemed to me. Like someone backstage told them, don't do anything stupid. And by their definition of stupid was don't use the top rope because Pillman is clearly grounded and you can see he's making an effort to stay grounded. Like someone clearly told him, Hey, listen, here's what we expect you to do. And once you see that Pillman is going half speed, you think Ricky Morton's going to go full speed. Nope. And also Heel Ricky Morton, no buys at all whatsoever. You understood what they were doing. They needed to give a marketable name to the York Foundation to make them seem like a credible threat. But this heel run for Ricky Morton, Richard, Richard Morton. I'm not. I'm not even going to dignify it. I'm Dick Morton. Just (laughs) horrible. Just it's it's terrible. It is, and it's even more terrible when you know 
what he was and to an extent still is capable of. This is a guy that still works independent shows into his 60s. When they got inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame, Jim Cornette had this tremendous speech, and he said when Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson wind up going into the nursing home, their hover rounds are going to have a double dropkick setting, and they can still do some really cool stuff. Ricky Morton is doing Canadian Destroyers in his mid-60s. The guy is insane, but you look at this match, and you look at the billing. You see Brian Pillman against Ricky Morton for a title, and you're thinking, oh, my God, this is going to rule. And then you look at this match, and it's like WCW played a cruel joke on us. It's terrible. I have it as a half-star match solely because of the finish. It's incredibly disappointing. So, so disappointing in this one, which I was, again, a lot of these shows that we've you've watched years back or you know a few matches here and there, you don't remember everything about the a lot of the matches throughout the card and you just sort of, you sort of see them. And I'm sure like you do, I do sometimes I'm looking through the card like, Oh, this will be good. This will be good. Oh, this probably won't be Oh, damn Andrew. Damn it. What did you do to me? You know, as I'm going through the cards, but <laughs> this was one of those matches that I circled and was really looking forward to. And that was not the case. And so that just ends about a really bad stretch of like 25, 30 minutes where you have like the Kaz Oz thing and you have the Van Hammer Summers thing, and that leads into this flying Brian Richard Morton match that just should have been so much more, and it wasn't. But the next part of the show was good, it was well done, and there's an angle on the show that's not even a match listed that ends up being a really good angle. We have the WCW Halloween Phantom versus the Z-Man Tom Zink, and the Phantom is a like masked. Bad guy in a full body suit So you can't really see a whole lot to them You can see a little bit about their of their face In sort of the openings in the mask But they were billed as from parts unknown Weight unknown And when the match Like what was cool about how this was done Andrew is that normally You have a guy like someone like the Halloween Phantom it, This could have been a squash for Tom Zank if you wouldn't have known, but but there's an angle going on with the Halloween Phantom, and Tom Zank was a, a a guy who was over with the crowd, so this was a good use of Tom Zank because the crowd was sort of like, what the hell just happened here? This guy with the mask comes out with this really intense offense. Every move, every punch, every kick was calculated and was really well done. Z-Man hits a drop kick. And a neck breaker And Tony says Whomever this guy is You know he, He's very intense And then Tony does give it away a little bit Because he Yeah says, I hated this I hated it I, I completely agree Because It's It was just not necessary He says One of the few Signature moves In the world Is the rude awakening And this man can execute it We see him hit the neck breaker For his finish he gets the pin, and then Tony says that about 10 seconds after. And so, I mean, that just completely gives it away when you're about to have the reveal in like 15 or 20 minutes. So I don't, I, I just didn't understand what the whole point of that was at all. It doesn't make any sense to me. 
Now the mat, like it was a good squash match for a guy that you bring in. You want him to look impressive. He looked impressive. I thought Shivani kind of ruined it a little bit with that. He did. Now it says a lot about how good this angle was that it's still regarded as a success. And we'll talk a little bit more about the promo that comes later on in the show. But yeah, that was a bummer. Quick trivia thing for you, though, Gino. Tom Zink was also the guy they threw in against the debuting Big Van Vader. I don't know if it was earlier this year, but it was the previous year. We talked about this. And Tom Zink is sort of the perfect guy for this kind of match at this time period. He works fast. He bumps like a madman for pretty much everything. And yeah, you get the neck breaker. And also the mask sort of comes a little off center to where the mustache is sticking out. And if you know what you're looking for, it sticks out like a sore thumb. And honestly, if I'm Shivani, it may have been a case where he probably thought, oh, people already know who it is. They can see the mustache through the mask. Da, 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 da. Still. If you're going through this charade of who is this guy? Who is this guy? Who is this guy? You've got to play into the act. You can't wind up saying that. Now, did it cost them any money? No, but it's just one of those unforced errors that production again, stuff that felt WCW, yeah. right? This yes. doesn't happen in WWE very much. You, it's not You perfect. just got where I was going. Yeah. Yep. Say what you will about Vince McMahon and most have and most will. That stuff didn't happen on his watch. So it, it's one of those things where bell to bell, this is a really good debut for this guy. And if you didn't watch the competition, it wasn't spoiled for you. But of course, we've watched a whole bunch of stuff over. How many of these have we done? It's got to be up around 90 or so. right? Yeah, we're getting we're I think we're close to 90 now. We were in the high 80s. So, yeah. Yep. So like but we've obviously seen so much of early 90s and late 80s WWF that even if we had no knowledge at all whatsoever, we would have been able to deduce that. And then for Shivani to do that, just it, it, it did rub me the wrong way, too. But they salvaged the angle later. And we're going to have a lot of fun talking about that segment up next. It's the WCW World Tag Team Championship match. Now, this was at the point when they had two sets of tag titles, which at the time period, WCW and NWA took tag team wrestling very seriously. So to have multiple sets of tag team titles, it really wasn't that crazy because there were a lot of tag team wrestlers. And honestly, in a match like this, you can kind of see why. Because a team like the WCW Patriots... Firebreaker tip, uh, Chip and Todd Champion, they look good. They check the boxes for what you would want a wrestler to look like. They're young guys at the crowd can, you know, they, they're good looking, but they're just green and they're trying, but they're not at the level of an Arn Anderson and a Larry Zabisco. And let me say, there were, weren't many at this period who would have been able to be, but it almost feels like it's a waste of a match. Not that it's horrible at match quality at all, Andrew. I think the, the Patriots actually try and they do the best they possibly could. But gosh, the like the heel work that you're getting here with Arn and Zabisco, like how they are like a well-oiled machine in and out of the ring, cheating, like doing dastardly stuff manipulating the ref, manipulating their situation, um, you know, 
forcing someone to chase him around the ring, and then when when they get in, then the heels can attack and arm tags in, just outsmarting the baby faces at every single turn. And Todd continues for a while, and then we actually get a really good, uh, big heat spot. The only problem is just nobody felt like uh, the crowd. Nobody in the crowd felt like the Patriots were on the level of the Enforcers, or that the Patriots could beat the Enforcers. Because when you got that hot tag, the the hope spot, crowd just does not care at all. And Chip is doing everything he can. But the crowd just not all that into it I actually thought the finish was Wasn't bad, the finish kind of felt Like when you watched it, what might happen In a real fight A couple guys just sort of get thrown into each other And then boom, boom, and and the match is over It wasn't Like a smooth choreographed spot But that's kind of why I liked it, it looked sort of real So I don't I don't want it to feel like I'm ne- negative On the, the Patriots All that much, because I actually think these guys did as well as they could have in a match like this against two incredible veteran wrestlers. But man, if we had the enforcers, I would have loved to see maybe another tag team that could keep up with them more in this spot. I don't know who it may have been at this time. You know, you've got the Steiners obviously in the, uh, in the opener. So, Oh no, we can't have the Steiners versus the enforcers for like a 15 minute. Awesome tag team match. We got to have them in the chamber of horrors match. Right, Andrew. <laughs> so here's a stupid idea Don't turn Ricky Morton Right Just I know. throw the Rock and Roll Express out there Have Ricky Absolutely. Morton get the crap kicked out of him For 10 minutes Make the hot tag Do the match that the Rock and Roll Express Had been doing for 10 years And would continue to do for a whole lot longer than that It's just one of those instances Where these guys They looked the part They're muscular guys But They weren't ready. They were green as grass. And I'm going to be harder on this than you. The only reason this match was even close to watchable is because Arn Anderson and Larry Zabisco knew exactly what they had to do, where they had to be, and they they could carry. This was a carry job in the firmest sense of the word. And you get the double team heel tricks. Those are fun. Uh, one of them tagging the other as they slide into the ring and the other coming from behind to just deck the guy. There's only so much they could do with these two guys that were the U.S. tag champs because while there was a lot of tag team talent on the roster, a couple of the main teams had split up. You had the R&Rs that split up. The Midnight Express had split up and Bobby Eaton was doing his thing as a singles guy. You had a couple of other teams that got separated. I mean, for goodness sake, the only reason the enforcers were around is because Tully Blanchard failed a drug test and couldn't jump back to WCW when Arn Anderson had finished up. So it just wound up being an instance where the tag team scene during this time was this random mishmash of people and the enforcers would wind up joining forces with the dangerous alliance and the first domino to fall in the Dangerous Alliance came right after this match. That's called a segue, children. Yeah, one of the recaps that I was reading through hit exactly what you had said. And the quote was, Viewed through the prism of an experienced heel team guiding a pretty generic babyface team to a watchable match, this one could be called a success. 
But it would be fit much better on a television show Rather than a pay-per-view broadcast Like this match More than the other squash matches This one would have been a Saturday night show Where you give Like an up-and-coming team A shot at the titles that doesn't really have a chance To win it, right? Just to see the belts be defended on TV Is kind of cool And nostalgic, you know and, and, And you get something out of that But it just, again, now we're at the 10th match of the card And there are One, two, three Four That don't really feel like maybe five They should have been pay-per-view matches You have another that was definitely more of an angle And and I'm I'm actually Allowing the Chamber of Horrors match in there I'm actually allowing that as an actual Pay-per-view match So <laughs> that just, just goes to show you As we only have one match Left but we have a good segment that comes before it. Eric Bischoff, dressed as a vampire, has uh, Paul E. Dangerously waiting with him on the ramp. This is a great promo from Paul. He says that WCW kicked him off the air as an announcer, and now he's going to wage war on them by taking out all of their heroes and will make the company crumble. He's going to start with Sting. I love that he actually... Calls Medusa the first lady of pro wrestling And they introduce the Halloween Phantom Heyman says this is the man that's going to help him take out Sting And he puts over the masked man And then they take off the mask And it's Rick Rude Ravishing Rick Rude Who was a big star Multiple time IC champ in the WWF Rick Rude was coming off of big matches in a feud with the Ultimate Warrior Who was in the main event And was your champion at the time And it was good man It was good Rude says he only cares about himself His women and his money He's here to take out Sting And he you know, he says oh, I've heard all about the Stinger I've never stood face to face He felt like a big deal He felt like a big star The I think all like a lot of the little things That you need when you have Someone new coming in, Andrew They all seemed like they worked really well for him Heyman set him up You had the crowd that reacted to him And the announcers did a good job putting him over And the little in-ring work that he did before Was good He looked intense He looked scary in that match He crushed the Z-Man, Tom Zank So now, all of a sudden Within just this little I don't know, five, seven minute segment and the minute squash match there Between about 10 minutes of on-screen time You've just got yourself a main event heel right here Yeah, and this was so well done From a company that at this time Was doing a lot of things wrong They got this exactly right Now, Rude left the WWF After a SummerSlam match Against the Ultimate Warrior It was a cage match There's some speculation going on as far as what really caused him leaving. The accepted version is that there was a significant difference in what the Ultimate Warrior made for main eventing SummerSlam versus what Rick Rude made for main eventing SummerSlam. Now, Rude and Warrior had tremendous chemistry. One of them was a talented in-ring wrestler. The other was not. And you can understand Rude being a little bit put off by that 
He freelanced for a solid year. It wasn't a case where he walked off of WWF television and then just walked straight into the arms of WCW. He was off mainstream wrestling for a year. He had a couple of independent dates. He went over to Japan and he worked a tour there, but he comes in and you're right in the span of 10 minutes, he looks like the biggest heel on the roster, which by the way, presents a little bit of a problem when WCW has a heel champion that they're trying to get over in the wake of their prior heel champion leaving due to a disagreement with Jim Hurd and forcing a lot of reset buttons to be hit. I am, of course, referring to the nature boy, Ric Flair. But the Dangerous Alliance did a lot of really good work. Paulie Dangerously seemed like he had been around forever at this point. He was only 26 or 27 years old at this juncture. Like, how busy does Paul Heyman keep himself? It's just, it's insane. But this was a lot of fun. And when he started talking about the stinger, the crowd went insane. Mission accomplished, the Halloween Phantom, a very successful debut. Really, really well done job here by getting someone over right off the bat. And that was the case as we get ready for the WCW world title main event. I've heard some people that have dogged this match a little bit, Andrew. I gotta I say like this match. I do too. I gotta say. I think this match was was very good. It was Lex Luger with Harley Race, and you had Ron Simmons with Dusty Rhodes in his corner. So and Lex before Luger, the match, really quick, can we talk please. about the Florida State trip? Absolutely. This was cool. So before the match, they had been pushing Ron Simmons as the college football legend, and he was. If you look at Ron Simmons' college career, He was a two-time All-American, and he was one of the first big recruits signed by a young, enterprising Florida State football coach named Bobby Bowden, who Ron Simmons considered a second father in real life, which is how they got to go to Florida State. Simmons took them through the locker room. They saw the retired jersey. Bobby Bowden makes an appearance on camera, giving Simmons a, a pep talk of sorts, and you see Ron Simmons running up the steps of the Florida State Stadium. This was a little on the low-budget side as far as the presentation goes, but as far as the concept, it was really cool. You could tell they had plans for Simmons, and the very next year, he would win the title that he didn't win this evening. He was supposed to be a big, big deal, and more than anything else, I blame the constant turnover at the top of WCW for not making him into the single star that he probably should have been. Really good job, man, on the package. And this is something that they we cringe at that when they would do a lot of the times. This was this was well done. Like it made him feel like a big deal. As you mentioned, the Florida State stuff. You got Bobby Bowden in the video. And and also, you know, you got Dusty in his corner, which I think hurts and helps him both, but it helps him feel like he's a big deal. But of course, Dusty's over, and Dusty's always going to be getting the big, big, big response. But I really thought this was a good like a good match. I like the way they worked the match. I, I thought everything about it felt good. Like this, this felt to me, Andrew, like what might happen in a wrestling match where you have this awesome athlete go into a wrestling match and maybe look impressive, look um, athletic, able to do all these incredible feats, but maybe just, you know, it's not a fight. It is a wrestling match. So there might be one or two things where, 
uh, if you're fighting a wrestler, the wrestler might just just know the rules, know the ins, know the outs a little bit more. That's kind of what you felt in this match. I thought they did a good job of of getting that point across. As Simmons, or right off the bat, we have uh, Dusty sort of chanting things at him like "No pain, no gain," you know, and he's just like. <laughs> All the generic stuff I will say Dusty did pretty good In between the falls though I thought he did a pretty good job as like the hype man In the corner We get a little bit of a slow start And then a quick flurry uh, By Simmons But he misses a drop kick Lex is in control And JR lets us know that these two Were actually teammates in the USFL On the Tampa Bay Bandits And they used to go up against each other In practice as Simmons was a defensive lineman And Luger was an offensive lineman So they would go right up against each other All the time and they had a lot of battles Now Ron hits a Clothesline A power slam And kind of out of nowhere he hits a spine buster And he picks up the first fall I like how they did this It kind of startled Luger It was like he wasn't really ready for it And now this has really Knocked Luger off of his game Andrew even after The first fall He's still shaking. Yeah. Now, I blame some of that on his entrance. Gino, can we talk about the weird just... Now, when WWF would have somebody come out for a main event match, there'd be video on a big screen. There'd be music pumping. You'd have pyrotechnics, and it'd be great. WCW had people put up letters that spelled Luger's name at the top of the ramp. Again... Big leagues, minor leagues, much different feel. Kidding aside, the first five minutes are electric. Simmons comes out firing. And it's at this point that I noticed Lex Luger is taking a lot out of Ric Flair's playbook here as far as letting the, the powerhouse have most of the offense, getting back into the match with these underhanded tactics. Dude, Luger is very good pitch. in this match. Luger yes. is very good here. He is. This is low key one of Lex Luger's best singles matches, I think. Now, Luger had a run in the late 80s, early 90s when he was motivated that presented a lot of really good stuff. He had matches with Flair. He had matches with Ricky Steamboat, who would be coming back shortly after the show, actually. And that was the culmination of the angle we saw at the top of the show where Barry Windham had his hand hurt because Steamboat came back as a mystery partner. Now, in this particular match, he's playing the flair role and giving this guy a lot of shine. He's making Ron Simmons look really, really good in a lot of the same ways that flair made him look good. It's a cool Mm -hmm. little Easter egg there. It is. And so now Simmons is up one fall to zero, and he's just a three count away from being the champ here, Dusty's really pumped up and he's trying to make sure that Ron doesn't get doesn't get too ahead of himself. He said, "Hey, look, stay aggressive. Don't be too defensive." And he, he, like little tidbits that, you know, they're cliché, but I thought it was it was good for someone like Dusty trying to keep Ron calm. I've been in this spot before. I've been in this position. You can do this. You're going to win the title here. And Ron comes out of the corner and He's still in complete control. He's flying around. He hits a bulldog. He almost wins this. And and Luger is just, he's rocked. He's stumbling around. He doesn't know what to do here. And you could tell uh, Ron gets him in a, uh, uh, Ron is about to line him up 
for like a big shoulder block. And that's when Luger steps out of the way and he's actually able to take control for a little while. And so Ron Simmons is going to be selling for a little bit. It just, it felt like a real serious world title match. I thought they did a great job here. They slow it down and we get some kind of rest holds in the middle. We get a chin lock and then we get a power slam by Luger for two. He's still selling the back though while on offense. This is just good stuff from Luger. Um, and then a big clothesline. And he, it looked like Ron rolls up Luger, but it was just for two. Then another backslide for two. Ron again is in control, but this is when Harley Ropes grabs Simmons by the leg, and and Dusty runs the, over to the side, and and so Dusty and Harley Race are getting into it outside the ring, and Harley actually kind of grabs the top rope, and while Ron and Lex are standing next to it. So it l- sort of looks like Ron Simmons threw Lex Luger over the top rope, but I I don't know, Andrew. I just I don't like this being a deciding being like a fall in a main event match. I hated this rule as it was, and we saw twice earlier on the show in the middle of matches when there were clear instances of guys being thrown over the top rope that didn't result in a DQ, and this was pretty obviously not. Like Ron trying to throw him over the top rope It was aided by Harley Race And I just For a match that I really like And I think is a 3 star plus match That's the one thing that I don't like A lot about this match is how they handled That second fall They wanted to try to keep Simmons strong But you could have figured out a better way To have a DQ in the fall Than, than the throw him over the top rope thing I, just, I didn't like it Harley Race is right there have him help Luger to cheat and win the second That's ball. it, right? That's it. Even when yeah. he just pulled his leg earlier, have him hold the leg down in a pin situation. Any of those would have been a better choice than this. Exactly. I have this match at either three and a half or three and three quarters. I really like this match. I agree with you. The I had only, a three and a half plus. Yeah, that was my the, exact rating. Yep. Yeah. The only thing that I think held it back from that four, four and a quarter range was how they handled the second fall. I understand the logic. I understand wanting to do something that gives Simmons a little bit of of credibility in the loss. Having said that, there were about a hundred better ways to potentially do that. And it just left a bad taste in my mouth. Did long-term, did it hurt Ron Simmons? No, but it's one of those things that prevents this very, very good match from reaching that next level, that four, four and a quarter star sort of thing. It's still a very good match. It's a hidden gem. And I had forgotten how good this match was when I did Chamber of Horrors. Because look, if you're watching Halloween Havoc 91 for any other reason than Chamber of Horrors, there's something wrong with you. Yes. This main event is really, really good. And it's just a shame that there was this one little hiccup in the second fall. If you're going to have that rule, and I've honestly, even in watching WCW in the early to mid 90s as a kid, and they would have that selective enforcement of that rule, just it just seemed to me like penny wise and pound foolish because, yeah, you're going to get some stuff that's okay, but you're also going to get some stuff that just doesn't make any sense. And this was the latter. So we're into the third and deciding fall now. And Ron looks like he's in control And the crowd was really into this Now for the third fall They were And we get a big superplex by Simmons 
Now we're getting some really nice near falls here There were like two or three of them in a row Where it looked like Simmons was just about to win it all He gets a big shoulder tackle off the second rope And then Luger rolls out of the ring Simmons follows him Follows him outside And Luger Goes running into the ring post And or Simmons follows him outside Luger ducks and then Simmons Goes running into the ring post And that's what flips the match That gives Luger the opportunity To roll Simmons back in Hit a pile driver and pick up the win When Ron Simmons was in control Of a lot of this match And he would go on to win The world title later But what this did Was this showed that he belonged Andrew This showed that he could be in a main event type match And he could pull his weight Unfortunately Once the belt was put on him There weren't all that many incredible Opponents set up for him You know once once, And that's always the difficult thing with the baby face Is sort of like you get there you get the big win Then what's next We see this WWE AEW Women's men's tag Singles you can tell the story of someone winning, but then it's like you don't have anything ready for them after they've won. That was what ended up being the problem for Simmons down the line. Not that his in-ring work was bad or that he couldn't keep up athletically. And he did have that real feel. Everything they showed at the beginning of this match in the video package, that was real. This guy was a star athlete. This guy was an All-American. It wasn't a made-up character. It wasn't a gimmick. And unfortunately They just They couldn't turn him into The face of the company guy But you know what This was a good match And I forgot how good it was And Luger gets a lot of crap But you're right There's this three or four year time period In WCW that If you only knew Luger From his later stuff From like his 93 WWF work and on Go back and watch some of his earlier stuff Because he's motivated He's young He can work these longer matches These main event type matches He can sell pretty well And he does it in some cases as a face And as a heel So you know he's someone that I think Has been holding up a little bit better In some of our rewatches Watching some of the earlier stuff At least in my opinion Here's a fun question for you How good would this version of Ron Simmons And that era's version of Flair have been in a main event feud Flair Gosh. would have made him Flair Absolutely. would have done everything Possible to turn Simmons Into a star and Simmons Was a lot better worker Than some of the guys Flair worked With and had to give that rub to um, But unfortunately They wind up giving Simmons The title in August of 92 And it's a big deal He's the first African American World champion in WCW History That shouldn't be a big deal. It's a Southern company. It's a big deal. You'll wind up with him still having these really good matches, but they didn't have any heels for him. And when you don't have any heels for a face champion, there's just not a lot you can do in that. One of his feuds was with the Barbarian. You know, he had a main event title match with the Barbarian who just people weren't believing as a, a main event contender at that time. And he wasn't. A guy like Ric Flair who could make the other person right? Not at that point, no No, and very few people can be that type of of wrestler Who it doesn't matter who you throw up against me on the other side I'm going to make them And I'm going to make them look like a million bucks That's 
very few people in the world can do that and could could have done that. It was Flair. Maybe you had Brett who could do that for some guys. Like there are just a few. Um, I, I thought Ron was really good here, and I thought Lex was really good here. And at the very end, I thought it was funny because Jr. calls the power uh, the pile driver the attitude adjustment. Yep, from Lex that, Luger. That is what they called it at that point. And yeah. I didn't remember Luger having a pile driver as a finisher. I remembered the torture rack. Me too. But I don't know what was going on there because Kazmaier used the torture rack. Mm-hmm. Luger's used couldn't have been a coincidence, driver. right? I, I I don't think so. No, but it's just you know this is a really good match. If you haven't seen this match, it's it's worth your time. And if you haven't seen any of Ron Simmons's early '90s work. We've done a couple of WCW shows from this era, and he usually delivers the goods. Okay, Andrew. So we are recording this on October the 25th. The week after we record this, you and I and Darren will be talking some Breeders' Cup. So we'll preview a couple of Breeders' Cup races. And then we'll probably be a few weeks off from our next old wrestling rewatch. But I want, I'm going to give you two. And I want you to pick one of these two, which is going to be next for us, okay? I'm going to give you two of them, and you get the chance to pick. And since we're talking WCW, they're both WCW shows. Okay, all right. So here's the first one. I'll give you this show, and I'll give you a few of the matches on the card, and then I'll give you the other one. First one, Wrestle War 91. We have one of the cooler War Games matches ever, where you have the four horsemen with Flair, Barry Windham, Sid Vicious, and Zabisco. Against Sting Pillman. Oh this is the one where Sid almost breaks Pillman's neck Yep and the Steiners Which is a really fun one Because that's like the total babyface All-star team of WCW Like Sting, Pillman, and the Steiners At the time You've got um, The Freebirds versus Doom You've got Luger versus Dan Spivey In a match that Exceeds your expectations v- uh, Big Van Vader versus Stan Hansen in a double DQ match. And then uh, some of the, the same sort of angles that were on this show are also there. You know, you'll have the Young Pistols. Terry Taylor with Alexandra York is in a match. And uh, you have Bobby Eaton and Brad Armstrong earlier on the card. And then you have a fun six-man tag to kick off the show. So that's the first one. Or Super Brawl 3, which is Vader Sting in the main event White Castle of Fear strap match. You've got Barry Windham versus Great Muda. You've got Dustin Rhodes versus Max Payne. You've got the Rock and Roll Express versus the Heavenly Bodies. Cactus Jack versus Orndorff. This is the debut of Davey Boy Smith, and this is the return of Ric Flair. He doesn't have a match on the card, but this is when he returns to WCW coming back from the WWF. So are we going to go Wrestle War 91, or are we going to go a little bit later to 1993 in the return of Flair? You pick I like Wrestle War One for a couple of reasons. That War Games War Games is coming up, right? I figured that it makes sense. It's relevant. Yep. Also, we get a guy that we don't see on these old wrestling rewatch as much because his work was in Japan. We get to talk about Stan Hansen, and I'm looking forward. I figured Hansen and Spivey were just kind of cool that popped up on here that we don't get the chance to talk about all too much. So let's talk about Wrestle War '91. A really fun War Games match. That'll be the next place that we head for the old wrestling rewatch. But Andrew, for anyone that's listening to this, they'll probably hear us talking some Breeders' Cup coming up. 
you, me, and DZ will preview uh, a race or two. I'll have the big show where we have different guests join us for each race, and I'm sure you will have a lot of stuff happening for the Breeders' Cup. You just started uh, a podcast recently yourself, and at andrewchampagne.com, you always have great write-ups. Tell us about what's uh, what's going to be happening for you in the Breeders' Cup. Sure, I'll be doing a whole bunch of Breeders' Cup stuff at a whole bunch of different places. Best place to follow me is on my Twitter account, at Andrew Champagne. That'll have links for pretty much everything. Also, PlayCA.com will have wall-to-wall coverage of the upcoming elections that could, but most likely won't, legalize sports betting in the state of California. So I've been doing a lot of work on that. Uh, it's a, it's a busy time of year. And after election day, my attention turns to the annual Vegas trip for Thanksgiving weekend, uh, in late November. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, just, it's a, it's a busy time of year. There's a lot going on, but it's all good stuff. The Breeders' Cup is always exciting. There's always places in which you can make some money there. Last year's Breeders' Cup was a pretty darn good one for me. Would have been an all-timer had the Breeders' Cup turf ended about 100 yards sooner. I promise I'll get over that at some point, but that, not this week, nah. not yet. Not nah, yet. Not, especially not um, when the Breeders' Cup comes around. Like Now it's yeah. fresh in your mind again. So Right, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So At any rate, though, a lot of things going on. Uh, best place to follow me is that Twitter account, at Andrew Champagne. Really excited for the Breeders' Cup next week. Pre-entries are coming out soon, and we'll have a lot of fun talking once the fields are officially set. Andrew, buddy, thank you so much. Uh, You have a nice few days. Get ready for the the calm before the storm. That is the Breeders' Cup next week. Make sure to give Andrew a follow. Check out all the great work that he does, whether it be horse racing, whether it be talking old wrestling with us. Always puts in the time and wants to make sure that you're entertained and you're informed out there. So give Andrew a follow. We'll be talking some racing next week. And when we return to the old wrestling rewatch, it'll be a fun war games match to discuss. It'll be Wrestle War 91. Don't go anywhere, folks. We still have a lot more to discuss on this episode of That's What G Said. That's going to do it for this episode of That's What G Said Podcast. A big thanks to Andrew Champagne for helping us out with the old wrestling rewatch. It's always great catching up with Cindy Carava. Hopefully she was able to give you some information that you, you may not have known about what's going on in the market right now. Eric's here every week with us talking NFL. And uh, don't forget, plenty of other content. If you are playing the Breeders' Cup, we have three different shows out there, a Friday Breeders' Cup, and then two different preview shows for Saturday. A bunch of different guests helped us out. We were very, very lucky, and hopefully we can uh, help make you some money this week. Good luck this weekend in all your plays. Hope everyone has a fantastic weekend, and we'll talk to you again next week. Yeah.